there will now be an opportunity for silent prayer or meditation. Thank you. Please be seated. Honorable members, uh, good afternoon, and please be settled. Stay where you are allocated a seat. Uh, keep a safe distance from each other uh, so that we keep this pandemic at bay. The first item on today's order paper is questions addressed to ministers in cluster two, social services. Honorable members, please uh, give us an audience. There are four supplementary questions. This is a reminder on each question. Parties have uh, been given an indicate, uh, have given an indication which questions their members wish to pose. Adequate notice was given to parties for this papers. This was done to facilitate participation of members who are connecting to the sitting through the virtual platform. The members who will pose supplementary questions will be recognized in allocating opportunities for supplementary questions. The principle of fairness, among others, has been applied. If a member who is supposed to ask a question through the virtual platform is unable to do so, due to technological difficulties, the party whip on duty will be allowed to ask the question on behalf of their member. When all supplementary questions have been answered by the executive, we will proceed to the next question on the question paper. The first question has been asked by Honorable S. Tambo to the Minister of Higher Education, Science and Technology. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. In view of the fact that the Republic is in the middle of a pandemic and that many students have no data and no access to university residences. Uh, Honorable Member Hooker, you've asked a question. It is the minister who will respond to you and then you will have the first supplementary question. Sure, sure. Okay. All right. That happens. Yeah. Honorable Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker, and thanks to the Honorable Member for the question. Uh, it should be noted that part of the university's multimodal plans involve supporting those students who do not have devices to acquire these and allocating data to students. Information collected from universities indicated that by the 30th of September, 2021, 90% of undergraduate students, including 91% of NESFAS funded students, were being allocated data. An analysis of student performance in 2020 and the challenges that face students in engaging with multimodal forms of learning will still be necessary. The proposed policy that the member is asking about is aimed at encouraging students to pass their courses 
and or modules each year and ultimately attain their qualification within the allowable time frames. The proposed policy on the 75% progression rule, if implemented, would only apply as of the 2023 academic year and would not be applied to students who enter higher education for the first time. This is in recognition of the transition that many students make from high school to university. NESFAS is considering all inputs at the moment that have been received through the current consultation process, and once they are done, they will submit the recommendations to me. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Uh, Honorable Tambo, it's your turn now for the first supplementary. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Uh, the culture of a lack of consultation, which informs the proposition of a 75% module pass rate to retain funding, seems endemic in the sector. The position is basically a meritocracy that is not considerate of prevailing social conditions, and universities seem to have inherited this attitude. We are now seeing universities implement vaccine mandates outside of broader democratic consultation in the country. What is the view of the Department on mandatory vaccination as a prerequisite to registration and access to campuses? Thanks, Mr. Uh, Honorable Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. The follow-up question the member is asking, I answered it this morning, that uh, the reason why there is consultation around increasing the number of modules to be passed each year is so as to ensure that students progress and are able as much as is possible to finish their degrees or diplomas within the set time. At the moment, progression is half, which means if that is the, we keep that criteria, a three-year degree will take six years to finish. Now, we cannot want to appear as revolutionary, as sometimes the EFF does, by promoting and, and institutionalizing failure. We cannot do that as government. In any case, to cater for students who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, already honorable deputy speaker and members, we allow one more year to finish a degree or a diploma for all NESFA students. We call it N plus one, precisely to cater for students who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. But also at the same time, it would be wrong to argue that all students who come from disadvantaged backgrounds they perform badly. Some of them, they are stars. They finish their degrees from Mkukwini in record time. So all, all what we have now does cater for all the things that the honorable member is concerned about. But of course, this is still subject to consultation, and it will come back to me once the consultations are done, as I have said, honorable deputy speaker. Thank you. Oh, sorry. Uh, Honorable Minister, unfortunately, he is supposed to ask one supplementary question. Okay. And the time has unfortunately uh, finished. Yeah. The second supplementary question will be asked by Honorable J.S. Mananiso. 
Thank you, Deputy Speaker. And indeed, I can reaffirm that the minister is responded to comrades now. Uh, my question no is... What consultative processes in the department undertaking Speaker. Uh, yes, what are you rising on? Deputy Speaker, I asked one question. You can't confuse a preamble with a question. The question no. was on vaccine mandates. That, are, that is, that is uh, revealing of a culture uh, of lack of consultation. There was one question that was on vaccine mandates in universities. Don't repeat that. Don't repeat that. I heard you. And I told you that in addition, the time of the minister has expired. So there's no question about the appropriate of the question. The, the, you were given an answer within the allocated time frame. No additional response could be made because the minister's time has, has expired. Um, honorable honorable uh, members, uh, we will now proceed. Uh, finish your question, ma'am. Eric is that the Pagabana Quakatami. Mamela, hey, Wabona Hakitibina and Tilitin Nakuyahao, Ukoinga Gai, Ukoit and Tree. Kialevor, a Negibota Minister Hore, what consultative processes in the department undertaking in revising the guidelines of NESFAS to improve outcomes? And what impact do standards have on performance? And why do eligibility standards matter, noting that NESFA students perform relatively higher than other students in the university system? I thank you, Kyalo Thank Minister. you very much. Minister? Uh, thank you, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Uh, thanks to Honorable Mananiso for the follow-up question. The process of consultation is being undertaken directly by NESFAS itself as the entity that is responsible for giving out. Honorable, sorry, Minister, honorable members on my left, can you please lower your voices? You are quite loud. Your caucuses are taking too long and are too loud. Please, go ahead, Minister. I was saying, Deputy Speaker, that uh, the, the consultation processes are being undertaken by NESFAS itself, which is the entity that is responsible for Creating bursaries to students. Secondly, I just need to emphasize that the importance of ensuring that students, that we change the eligibility criteria to consider increasing the number of modules that must be passed each year is aimed mainly at ensuring that there is movement in the studies of students and we encourage as many of them as possible to finish on record time. That has got multiple positive impact. Firstly, it's good for the students to finish on time. Secondly, also, it makes sure that we do not keep students in the system who are supposed to have finished because that is actually also a cost not only to the student, but also is a cost to the government as we actually support the students. But the main thing is to ensure that students are able to get out of the system with their qualifications as soon as possible. That is the main intention of actually revising and looking at the guidelines. Thank you very much, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Thank you. The next question is asked by Honorable C.V. King. 
Thank you. Um, Minister, from a parliamentary question, it was stated that 8,252 NEFSA-funded university students and more than 88,000 NEFSA-funded TVET students did not pass a 2020 academic year, meaning that they could not achieve a 50% overall pass. For NEFSA to, be fund, uh, to have academic excellence and fund academic excellence, is consideration given to amend the guidelines for an incremental pass over five years, starting next year in 2022 with a 55% pass, and then in 2026 um, have a non-negotiable 75% pass rate. Uh, Minister. Uh, thanks, Honorable Deputy Speaker, and thanks to Honorable King for her follow-up question. I just want to make it very clear that the guidelines on this matter at the moment, they stand at 55, 50%. They've not as yet been amended. We are consulting about amending them. The final guideline will only be adopted once NESFAS has come back to report to me about their process and after which what the recommendations of that would be. But I do want to emphasize this. We allow four years for a NESFAS student to finish a three-year degree. Now, you can then make a calculation, your own mathematical calculation. What percentage of modules do you have to pass each year in order to be able to have, to finish a three-year degree by four years? It's 75% plus, actually, per annum, if you are actually going to be proceeding. So what also these guidelines are doing are, outline, are, are, are aligning themselves, seeking to align themselves with what is the policy in any case. Because almost irrespective of what you get each year, if you have done a three-year degree for four years, NESFAS will not be able to fund you after that if you, are if you have not been able to finish your degree, for instance. That is the purpose of this. It's not as sometimes, unfortunately, you know, it gets presented in the media as if we're an uncaring government who doesn't care about students that they are progressing. The fact that we are funding them plus one year to fail is the most generous thing we could do. And nowhere else in the world is this happening, by the way, except in the Republic of South Africa. Thank you very much. Thank you. The last supplementary question on this one is from Honorable Kwangwa. Uh, <clears throat> thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. Perhaps the question, Minister. In fact, I think what I should say is that I expected you to explain as well the rationale behind the 25 percentage points jump, which constitutes 50 percent, in fact, of the current, uh, in terms of the current regulations. 50 percent jump, if you were to look at it. And secondly, I think, more importantly, should the focus firstly not to try, your focus firstly not to try and address and attend to some of the structural deficiencies and the operational inefficiencies of NFSFAS before you engage in this discussion because that has the ability to impact negatively on the ability of students to, to, to perform optimally academically. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Deputy Speaker. Thanks to Honorable Nkwanko. Honorable Nkwanko, if you want to ask me a new question on 
What is it that we are doing to make sure that the system is student-friendly? I'll be more than happy to do that. I'm saying this because I don't have the time now to be able to outline to you the amount of Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't be behaving like that. Just switch off your and mute, man. Please, I know it's a mistake sometimes, but be alert and present to your system. We can't be having such interruptions every day, and we must remind members every day. No, no, what's wrong with us, man? Really? Go ahead, Honorable Minister. Let me just say then, that, for instance, we have got a very, in relation, just to make an example with universities, we are doing similar things for Tibet colleges. We have what is called a university capacity development program, which is... Which has been... uh, uh, Nkalani mute, please. Musa nuna nukba choena. Kwa manja kuse kumeshuku pagatukui nunaabo. Please go ahead, uh, Minister. I hope members are listening on the virtual platform to switch off their systems there. We have got what we Uh, proceed, Minister. We have the University Capacity Development Program, which focuses on improving, amongst other things, learning and teaching, strengthening support to students, as well as ensuring that we have got prop appropriately qualified academics in institutions. For instance, our goal is that in the end, you should not have someone who is a lecturer at a university who does not have a doctoral degree. We're working towards that. Those are all the things, because it's not in our interest as government, by the way, just to be satisfied by funding students, but being funded into a system that is not being responsive to them. So there are a lot of things that we are doing to improve the pass rate and to create student-friendly institutions, both at university and Tibet colleges, and indeed in our community education and training. So we have to do both things. As we change the guidelines, we continue to improve the situation. One should not necessarily wait for the other. We have a comprehensive approach to ensuring improved outcomes from learning and teaching activities in our institutions. Thank you very much, uh, Thank Honorable you, Minister. Minister to speak. Uh, question number 313 has been asked by Honorable T.M. Masuta to the Minister of Human Settlements. Uh, Honorable Minister. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. Um, greeting and thank you, Honorable Masuta, for the question. Um, the issue, I, I must indicate first that government remains committed 
in terms of providing shelter, especially to the most vulnerable and the indigent communities. Yes, as since I've been in the portfolio, we have received report um, in terms of the unfinished projects across the country, visiting the seven out of nine provinces as well. We have interacted with stakeholders where we found the unfinished projects. We are currently, um, Deputy Speaker and Honorable Members, quantifying. We can say so far, we've been able to quantify 1.9 million units of um houses that have not been completed and this is for different reasons one is where you find that somebody would have done a house left it at a foundation phase because um either resources had run out in terms of our allocation of resources others is because somebody would have received the money and never um uh, actually uh, gone to finish and those are some of the cases that are with law enforcement agencies and others would be lack of understanding of what needs to be done so it's at different various levels and also for different um purposes chair but what we are doing now is to quantify them put them together in terms of the value how much we need and also to check the credibility of the structure so that when we say we are rectifying we know that we're rectifying structures that will be able to stand. So we will be able to provide through the portfolio committee in three months time, quantified a clear analysis of the unfinished projects across the country and where they are and how we are going to deal with them. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Minister. Uh, Honorable Masuta. Uh, thank you, Deputy uh, Speaker. I hope you can hear me. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. Yes. And thanks to the minister for her answer. Um, I uh, would like firstly to compliment her on her uh, recent appointment to this portfolio. And I'm sure she'll agree with me um, uh, that uh, she has her work cut out for her, especially given the three spheres across which this uh, the mandate of this portfolio strikes. But Based on that, Minister, what are the mitigating uh, measures that you hope to implement in consultation with your partners at these three spheres to mitigate against all the myriad of challenges that have been there, not only for years, but in fact, uh, in some instances for decades? Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Thank you, Ndati. Uh, Minister. Thank you very much, um, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honorable Masuta. Um, part of what we are doing, we are tightening around, tightening around the contract management together with the provinces. Our conversation is to say, we should not go out when we are not yet ready. That's the first thing. The second area as well is also around project management. We do know that part of the problem is because over time, when you link the project management and you link with contract management, there were not enough clauses that actually could hold contractors liable should they have failed to deliver on time and within the areas. So proper planning that we are doing. So we've decided that we'll do even in terms of our business care, uh, business plans because provinces submit business plans which minister signs off and together, especially with the metros. So what we are doing now is to be able to go in detail and have a conversation between ourselves as national and the province and together with local municipalities to tighten the areas that we are working for. We are going to implement within a particular financial year so that we are able 
to also ensure that we can make sure that we are able to implement the last area of tightening is around our grants, where you find that if particular amounts are not spent, it at a time, for example, let's say February at the fourth quarter, National Treasury tends to take the resources away. That's where you find that some of these projects, whether will be at foundation phase and therefore they are not completed. We are having a conversation with National Treasury. I have already written to the Minister of Finance to request flexibility around the conditional grants of human settlements. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Minister. Uh, Honorable Mishwe, it's your turn. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Unfinished housing projects constitute fruitless and wasteful expenditure, encourages crime and vandalism while wasting land that could be used to provide homes for families. Yet in Betuli, in the Free State, many of the RDP houses are without doors, roofs, and windows. In Imbadi, as an example, Residents have been living in incomplete houses for over 10 years. Now, my question to you, Honorable Minister, is how many housing projects were left incomplete as a result of late payment by government, which caused contractors to become insolvent, compared to how many projects failed because of corruption with respect to housing lists? Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Thank you very much, um, Deputy Speaker, and thank you, Honorable Mishwe. I think uh, one is that I acknowledge that indeed, when we have unfinished projects, uh, we have a beneficiary that is waiting to be able to receive that house. And that's why part of the issue is to resolve around beneficiary list who are sitting on our list and reflecting having benefited, whereas it's because of the unfinished projects. We do note I was in Free State, I've been to various projects where I did see some of these unfinished projects, whether they are at foundation phase, whether they are at a wall plate phase and all those things. But the issue here in terms of different categories, honorable members, I will be able to come back, as I said, in three months time to be able to classify. These ones are as a result of late payment and this one are as a result of, uh, for example, um, because of corruption and all those things. But one example that I would want to reflect, for example, I came across a project in Volmaranstadt in the Northwest where we are now currently, and I will be visiting Northwest on the uh, next month, um, sorry, within this month in December before we go on recess and deal with the projects whereby service providers were on site and they have not been paid and therefore the projects have stopped. So. Deputy Speaker, currently we cannot give to say in this province how much it is we are doing that quantification. And that's why we are requesting three months to be able to finish that work, do due diligence, and then we can give accurate figures so that we're not found to have misled Parliament nor the Honorable Member. Thank you, Minister. The third supplementary is asked by Honorable E.L. Powell. Thanks, Honorable Minister. Uh, on the issue of measures taken to recoup funds lost to incomplete projects, uh, we've recently been informed that uh, the Auditor General uh, reported to us that last year the, the SIU launched investigations into allegations of corruption 
in respect of the emergency housing tenders that were awarded during the COVID hard lockdown period. Um, and we know that a number of HDA uh, officials were arrested and are now out on bail. But our committee has been informed that no recommendations or appropriate action was taken by the accounting authority against those implicated. Uh, can the minister please explain to this house what action she has now taken to implement consequence management uh, in her new department? Thank you. Honorable Minister. Thank you very much, Honorable Deputy Speaker, and thank you, Honorable Poyle. Let's correct um, the recommendations of SIU. This is in relation to Talana in Limpopo. One, the recommendation from SIU, they referred six officials to us. One has since resigned. Two have been taken to disciplinary processes through HDA, which is our entity. And these three were the first one that were recommended. When I met with um, SIU just um, end of October, they had now were in the process of referring three additional officials at HDA. And therefore, the accounting authority at that time was the administrator had committed to do work in terms of ensuring that even those three are facing a consequence management. We have since appointed HDA board. And part of what I've said to them yesterday was this matter of consequence management. In relation to the person who had submitted documents that were fraudulent, HDA has written to National Treasury to get this contractor to be blacklisted. And as we are aware, it's a process that takes long. But again, uh, from SIU, as the responsible um, body, they've taken, they've actually opened a case, they've assisted us on behalf of government. Their contractor is was appearing on the 4th of November in the Polukwani Magistrate Court. But secondly, uh, not all the money was paid. So currently as well, we are in the process through SIU to recover some of the money that has been paid. So there has been consequence management in relation to the TRU, specifically in Delana case. Others, we are waiting for recommendations. Once we receive, we will deal with that. Thank you. Thank you, Minister. The next one is asked by Honorable Sheikh Imam. Uh, thank you, Deputy Speaker. Deputy Speaker, allow me to extend my condolences of the NFP on the passing of Honorable Mshlongo and uh, may his soul rest in peace. Minister, thank you very much for the report that you've given and where you indicate in three months time, you will give a comprehensive report. Would you consider adding to that report, uh, Minister, for the purposes of transparency, value for money, identifying repeat offenders or delinquent contractors, all contracts that have housing contracts that have been uh, allocated countrywide, Inter, uh, including the names of such contractors and the value of those contracts and whether there's been any escalation in these contracts to ensure that we are not now costing us a lot more than before. Thank you. Uh, Honorable Sheikh Imam, in future when you have uh, such an indication as you just made, it's always better to let us know so that we do it on your behalf. Uh, for the entire house to acknowledge uh, passing away of a member, if that's what you were saying. Please, uh, okay, protocol, thank you. Uh, protocol can be stiff, but we have to use it. Uh, yeah. Sorry, uh, Chair. Siabonga, Ugu, Kalilum Song. But Tum Songo, Benga, Yenet, Yebenge, E. 
BFF. Honorable member, it's okay. It's uh, passing condolences to you. What's your problem? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah. Kathleen, Kathleen, Uma Ubuntu Sebu Balegi Lenga Leon Zelagubi. Let's go to uh, Honorable Minister. Thank you very much, um, uh, Deputy Speaker, and thank you, Honorable Sheikh Imam. Um, I do think what Honorable Sheikh Imam is requesting, it will be quite an extensive work that you can't do in three months. I think we need to be quite realistic. And my fear with what the scope now he's talking about is that we might end up spending millions in investigations, whereas we need millions to deliver houses. So we'll see to which extent, Honorable uh, Deputy Speaker, how we are able to be um, able to go to the details. But what I can assure Honorable Sheikh Imam is transparency and more accountability, but also caution that we shouldn't spend the limited resources that we have as the department in investigations instead of uh, in delivering of the houses. Because if we are to go into detailed variation, we might not be at a position as a department to do that. We might have to find a service provider that is able to give us those that this contract was supposed to be 20 rand, then it has been escalated. And you can only do that with for example, forensic investigators. And we know, Deputy Speaker, they are quite expensive. So I'm just bringing caution while we'll do our best to ensure that there's transparency and accountability in terms of the work. Thank you. Uh, the next question is 343, asked by Honorable uh, van der Merwe to the Minister of Social Development. Uh, Honorable Minister, Unmute your mic, uh, Honorable Minister. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Deputy Speaker. I um, started by saying that condolences to the Nklomo family. May his soul rest in peace. Uh, we had our moments in the house. May he rest in peace. The need to ensure that grants are paid only to those who qualify for grants they receive is fundamental and it has to be appreciated and understood at all times. To this end, SASA regularly checks the social grant database against PESAL information to ensure the integrity of the social assistance database. The exceptions are managed in terms of the provisions of the Social Assistance Act, even where public servants are involved. The suspension of these social grants which I know caused a whole lot of uproar, was reversed in November 2021, following the outcry that the vast majority of the beneficiaries were EPWP beneficiaries, uh, benefic workers who all intends, whose stipend is paid through PESAL. This information is being validated with the Department of Public Service and Administration and will inform the review process that is being done. 
the review process will indicate that the amount overpaid, what was that amount overpaid, which has to be taken, a, taken on as debt, followed by recovery processes. There is no indication at this stage of the actual amount overpaid. And the answer to B is that no disciplinary action has been taken against any SASA official for the above, as there is no evidence that any SASA staff member failed to implement the legislative prescripts for the approval of these grants. However, should any evidence be uncovered during the review process that the prescripts were not followed, disciplinary action will be implemented. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Uh, the first supplementary is asked by Honorable Van der Merve. Thank you very much, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Honorable Minister, I've heard what you said, um, but what you are telling me, and because um, currently we've got 5,812 government employees who collected the 350 grand grant unlawfully. And you told me in a written question this week that only 242 cases are being investigated and none of these cases have made it to the police or the NPA. Furthermore, no government officials are suspended for these uh, 350 rand grants, which they collected unlawfully. It is clear, therefore, Minister, that it seems that your department has got no intention to deal decisively with corruption, to hold to account those who steal from taxpayers and from the poor. So my question is, how is it that you were not aware for example, that government officials were collating grants that were not due to them, uh, the 350 and this uh, 177,000 employees. And what are your plans to fix SASA's vetting procedures and its databases, which are clearly now outdated, deficient, and are routinely being compromised, bypassed, and abused by fraudsters? There was also a story of Sunday on Carte Blanche, Honorable Minister, where uh, Ms. Fatima was able to approve grants um, for, for South African citizens who didn't qualify for them. So clearly your system is rotten, it's broken, there's corruption in the system, and your department and your, 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 you as a leadership of this portfolio are not dealing with it decisively. I thank you. Honourable Minister. Um, thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker, and I, think, I thank um, Honourable Van der Merve. I do want to make it straight, and I do want to make it as a fact, that we do everything we can to make sure that any monies that have been unlawfully taken by anybody in our system, that money has to be returned. We do have a debt book, and that debt book is what we use to try and recover the money as much as we possibly can. Secondly, also as fact, there is no way that we as a department or myself as a Minister of Social Development would stand on the way or tolerate any form of corruption that is being uncovered or discovered uh, in the system. And thirdly, I also would like to make a distinction between the 350 and those officials who, uh, those officials who applied and got the 350 and this particular question that relates um, to public servants who, as I have indicated here, are public servants who fall under the EPWP. In fact, I think there's got to be a big separation between civil servants as well as EPWP workers or interns who actually get far less um, either as the, as the stipend 
or whatever money is being paid. The challenge here is that some of them do need to get the money because they have they either taking care of, of children, children who deserve to, to get um, a, 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 the, 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 the grant that they receive. And therefore, there's got to be a separation between the two. And also to say uh, respectfully, Honorable uh, Fandamerve, the issue of the 350 is not what we are having a conversation about here. There is a separate question altogether, which I have many a times genuinely and frankly answered because that's what I believe in. But also to say the members of the department or the officials of the department, if by any chance any of the officials are found to have colluded or done anything in the wrong, believe me, we will take action against them. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Honorable Stock will take uh, the second supplementary question from Honorable Bilankul. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Deputy uh, Speaker. Deputy Speaker. Honorable okay. Deputy Speaker. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, I was told you are not, but proceed. Fortunately, I'm here. Thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. Uh, Honorable Minister, what system has the department introduced and envisaged to develop and improve its ability to have information sharing with different organs of state in ensuring the avoidance of double dipping of government financial support interventions to ensure optimum social assistance for the poor? Thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Bilangulu, for that question. At present, the SOCPEN system interfaces with, with the population register of the Department of Home Affairs to validate the applicant's identity number, marital status, and names, as well as the government's employee database called PESAL, to validate whether the applicant is employed in the public service or not. In addition, SASA has an, an MOU to facilitate data sharing with the following departments, Government of Employees Pension Fund, National Student Financial Aid Scheme, Correctional Services, Unemployment Insurance Fund, and the South African Revenue Services. SASA and the department is in the process of developing yet another MOU with the Department of Public Works so that we can also avoid um, some of these issues as correctly raised uh, by um, uh, Honorable uh, Fanda Merwin. I do also, Chairperson, want to indicate that during the 350 itself, it is where we realize that data between and amongst government departments has a, 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 a challenge. Hence, it was taking long, for instance, uh, to approve some of the applications, but we have to do everything we can to improve our systems. And now that we have even better technology and locally based technology, we'll try and improve in the best way that we can so that data within government is shared and shared easily. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Honorable Kwankwa. Uh, thank you, Deputy Speaker. Minister, even though the question really is not about the 350 rands, but your responses to question have tended to point me to that 350 rands. According to the first special report on the financial management of government's COVID-19 initiatives, one of the issues that the auditor 
general raised was the need to develop, to develop rather preventative control measures to ensure that payments of the special grant in particular are only made to those qualifying beneficiaries as per criteria. At the time of this discussion, a database management system had not been created which could pick up people who fall through the cracks and not be able to be picked up via the UIF SARS and NFSAS validation checks. What other measures have you put in place to ensure the integrity of the social grant system as a whole, including the 350, so that we don't end up with the allegations we once saw in the media and that we hear from colleagues from across the continent that there are people who come and collect social grants from neighboring countries and go back to those countries again in South Africa. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member, Honorable Minister. Um, thank you very much, Honorable Nguangwa, for that um, question. And yes, it's important for us to appreciate the fact that we have to keep on improving um, our system. For instance, I may say I'm having endless discussions uh, with the CEO about the SOC pen and the old system called SOC pen and the need for us to be able to acquire new systems that can be able to uh, be, 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 be effective, if I may use that right word, so that we do not have the kind of issues that are being raised about the wrong uh, people uh, getting a, a social grant. But I do want to say, um, uh, Honorable uh, Deputy Speaker, that as far as the SASA systems are concerned, really uh, to a very large extent, when it comes to the ordinary grants that have been given, never mind the 350, the system has been working very well from a point of view of registration and ensuring that uh, people are paid. What has been a problem, obviously, is how do we make sure that the information that is being given by the beneficiaries is the real information and can be there can be checks and balances of ensuring, for instance, that it is not citizens uh, who are coming from other countries who have got no citizenship of South Africa. But we must also realize that even for some of the people who are foreign nationals in South Africa, some of those who have already acquired the citizenship and have been here for a long time will not be excluded. But I do agree that the database management system needs to be improved. And there is already a process within SASA of ensuring that we can acquire a better database management and processing. Thank you, uh, uh, Chair. Thank you, uh, Minister. The last supplementary question on this matter is by Honorable L.H. Aris. Yeah, thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. Um, Minister, yes, I hear you hammer on personal and personal, but the reality of the information that you have is that you only have a personal and personal number. That's it. Minister, the biggest scandal here is that this fragrant theft of public funds meant for poor people was allowed to take place. This speaks directly to the lack of internal controls with East Sasa and an outdated system and perhaps collision between corrupt officials and others outside of Sasa. What measures have you taken to tighten internal controls within Sasa to ensure that there is no corruption of any kind? And when do you take accountability 
for all this embarrassing corruption. Honorable member, honorable minister. Thank you very much, uh, Chairperson. The one thing I can assure you, uh, honorable Aris and honorable members, is that I will never run away from responsibility. I have always said at all times that when there are faults that are being found in my system, I take responsibility upfront by ensuring that I do what needs to be done in terms of ensuring that there is um, adequate um, a, a checking of our systems. And there's also, um, there is, a, a, in fact, by the way, before we even get to uh, the system of what needs to be done, government does have uh, the systems of checks and balances. Yes, obviously the problem it is about outside people who, uh, who plot and plan and, and twist the system. And a few, again, I want to say a few, because if you look at the work that is done by the Department of Social Development overall, and in particular by SASA officials who really wake up in the morning to go and do their job, they are in the majority, it's just a small minority of people. And I, I can tell you now that if we do come across those and they are found uh, to be guilty, the law will always take its, 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 its uh, course in this case. There's no way that I, as a minister, can, 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 can cover up when it comes to officials who are corrupt. I have no intention of doing that. And I have told the members over and over again, even in the portfolio committee, that I don't run away from responsibility. Where I need to take responsibility, I will take responsibility. I thank you. Thank you. The next question is 314, asked by Honorable G.K. Tseke to the Minister of Water and Sanitation. Uh, I'm informed the Deputy Minister will take the questions. Honorable Deputy Minister. Your Excellency, uh, 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 Deputy Speaker, thank you very much. I also joined the uh, Minister Umakeba, Mongjulisa Amazogzolana Nomde Nawanjomane, Babu Deputy Speaker. Well, uh, thank you very much to the question asked by Her Excellency, uh, Comrade Great Zeke. The Constitution Chair uh, implodes us that uh, water is a right and it's a right to life. Therefore, every drop of water that other people are blocking or they are wasting, Chair, someone downstream or someone somewhere is looking for that particular drop. We have institutions like Water Use Association, Irrigation Board, and Water Users and Water Services Authorities, especially municipalities that are supposed to report illegal water use. That would include unauthorized dams. The impoundment of these illegal dams, uh, Chair, uh, Deputy Speaker, it reduces the river or the stream flow, especially if these dams are constructed without outlet works, causing detrimental impact on downstream ecosystem and other water users. The areas of concern are in the Western Cape chair where this is happening in Predacorids, also in Limpombo and some areas in Pumalanga in lower olifants water management areas. And it is a high rate that we are detecting these illegal dams using our own compliance monitoring and enforcement units. And one of the issues our chair is also about the engineering of these such dams 
some of the, the structural integrity of these dams, they can cause a lot of problems. And uh, we have also to ensure that we regulate. In South Africa, we do have about um, 5,576 of these dams that are registered. We, have, we are conducting regular engineering inspections so that there's issues of dam safety. In instances where we become aware of illegal dams, we are actually doing proactive surveillance. We report, we do investigation, and we direct those who are constructing those dams illegally to demolish it or to stop it. In instances when they don't do it, uh, Deputy Speaker, we actually demolish the dams ourselves. And in certain instances, we open criminal actions as required by the law. At this stage, since 2017, we have about 174 cases that were reported, and 21 of them have been finalized. The other ones are a little bit difficult because of engineering challenges. The biggest culprits on this matter, Chair, is mostly in the agricultural sector, where predominantly this sector is stopping water. Remember the problem of Cape Town. They said there was day zero, but there were certain farmers that were saying that water is available because they stopped that water at the top. The regulation of illegal dams, Chair, will continue to conduct them in a spirit that we all live downstream, and we need to prevent those upstream from abusing their privileged location to the detriment of the downstream water users. We urge public, we urge the leaders, and all entities to report instances where water is being abused and is not available for other users. I thank you, Chair. Uh, thank you, uh, Deputy Minister. Uh, Honorable Tseke. Thank you very much, Mutlatsa uh, Musakhutla. And thank you very much, His Excellency, the Deputy uh, Minister of Water and Sanitation. Um, my question is that what is the department doing to ensure it builds a substantive surveillance and processing capability to address the illegal dams problems, noting the low number of cases identified and processed. Thank you, Ma. Uh, Deputy Minister. Well, uh, thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. To Her Excellency, Comrade Whip of our committee, we are actually increasing the capacity of the department when it comes to the regulatory function in the department. Chairperson, we need to indicate it has been neglected over some time. We are trying to increase the staff numbers that will be responsible for compliance. We used to have uh, the, the, the blue scorpions that need to be able to do some of these uh, surveillance activities. At the very same time, Chair, we need to indicate that the advent of technology like we're using today will be able to place the eyes in the skies using the drones to deal with some of these particular issues. But for successful prosecution, we'll en engage with our counterparts in the Minister of Justice, so that even the prosecutors and the law enforcement agencies, when we take these cases to the courts, we are very successful. But we'll also ensure that we call upon all South Africans who are actually using water to register for their water use in our own system so that we can be in a position to ensure that we do compliance licensing in terms of the process of verification and validation. 
But as we say, Chair, anybody who steal water, irrespective of your standing in the position in society, that's illegally. We are denying other people their human rights and dignity to water. And the law shall act, we shall act without any fear or favor. Thank you, Chair. Uh, thank you, Honorable Basson. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Good afternoon, Deputy Minister. Minister, the previous minister indicated that the verification and validation of existing lawful water use and water registration will be speeded up. Minister, as you know, this is not happening at this stage. I would like to know from you, Minister, how are you going to fast track the verification and validation of existing water, lawful water use in all water management areas in order to secure a speedy water allocation reform to address water needs in this country. I thank you, Speaker. Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Deputy Minister. Thank you very much, Deputy Chair, and thanks to Honorable Person. We have to admit, Chairperson, that this is an area of work that our department has performed very poorly over time. And our failure to perform in this area, Chair, has compromised the transformation and redress of ensuring that water is accessible to those that were denied water, including those that were denied economic, op economic opportunities with access to water. As the new Ministry of Water led by Minister McClingwane and ourselves, we have taken a decision, Honorable Pasoni, that very shortly we'll be working with our Water Research Commission, including with the CSIR, because of the repository and the capability that exists targeting all the water management areas, especially the water management areas on risk profile on the basis of the stretch catchments. We have started some work in the Western Cape. We are actually starting some work also in the province of Pumalang and other areas. So that all the users are registered so that we can be in a position to ensure that all existing lawful use are actually converted where necessary into compulsory licenses. But this is so important in our case, especially that government has prioritized the question of land reform so that nobody is going to be given land without access to water. But also equally so, there are those that still need water for other economic use, especially the issues of um, a, a economic use by the agricultural sector. It's a matter of priority and we'll continue to account to the House and in the portfolio committee about our plan to address the deficit we have. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, uh, uh, Deputy Minister. Uh, the next is Honorable uh, Mukhotu. Thanks, Chairperson. The question is going to be taken by myself, Honorable Mashala. Deputy Minister, water is a public resource and the state is the custodian of this resource on behalf of the people. As recent as 2018, your department reported that 1,000 illegal dams are siphoning water from the Kuha River and its network of tributaries in the Eastern Cape. What action have you taken against those who were identified by your department as having been culprits in constructing 
illegal dens. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Mutlala. Chief Whips, please tell us when you change names on the list you submitted yourself to us. Now it appears a bit clumsy. Yeah, thank you very much. Honorable Deputy Minister. Well, thank you very much, Your Excellency, Deputy Speaker, and thanks to Honorable Fighter Mshala. We do agree with you that uh, water is a public good, but we're also indicating that um, water, let it be a societal issue. We all have to take responsibility as individual citizens, including the institutions. As the department, we are frowning upon the question of illegal dams because it has an impact on our human rights and access to water. As of 2017, as I indicated earlier on, we have about 174 cases that were reported. And those that have been reported, we have also done our own investigation and finalized 21 of them. A number of them chair are remaining about 153 because we also have to do some engineering assessment. And due to our limited capacity, we have to deal with uh, some of those backlog. But I need to mention, Chair, that another difficulty we have is the administrative actions around giving people notices, following the Administrative Justice Act. Sometimes it takes a, lot, a long time before you can be able to start the prosecution. We'll even review the National Water Act with the possibility of coming with regulations and making it a stiffer sentence, Your Excellency Deputy Speaker, that those who continue to deny people the right to life, which is the right to water by blocking water, it should be taken as a serious offense, including those who are destroying critical infrastructure related to water and access to water by communities. I thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Honorable uh, Butelezi, it's your turn. S.A. Butelezi. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Um, Honorable Deputy Minister, while on the subject of water security, we've seen a total lack of accountability as South Africa's rivers are filled with waste, with no one wanting to take responsibility for the E. coli counts or the mountains of litter. Therefore, in light of the fact that South Africa is a dry country, classified as semi-arid, receiving just under half the average annual rainfall of the rest of the world, and predicted to become even drier with climate change, how will this department take action and intervene with specific timeframes, roles, and responsibilities to the astronomical E. coli numbers and other pathogens found in the rivers, which are light years beyond acceptable means. Uh, thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Honorable Deputy Minister. Well, the issue of pollution, Chair, it poses the biggest challenge of our time in South Africa, wherein we do have access to water, but this water is not uh, fit for human consumption or for other uses because of the deterioration in the water quality. In the main, the deterioration in water quality is caused by human activities especially with respect to agriculture, the landfill sites, the issues of industries, and the municipalities that are failing to manage their wastewater treatment works. 
As a department, we are we have revived as we have announced in the in this budget speech, our green drop and green drop chair. We have also improved our capacity around water quality monitoring. Our message, Chair, is very simple: is that polluters will pay. We'll conclude in cabinet early next year our submission to cabinet with respect to the waste charge discharge system as a premium to all those that continue to pollute our ecosystem. But more importantly, society has an important role to play and will roll out a massive campaign in schools and in broader society that we can't litter in our rivers and our, and our system because our rivers and dams, they remain the most important component as a treasure for economic development, for recreation and other users. Therefore, we are appealing that all agencies, we need to be able to work together and be able to bring polluters to book, but we also have to start as members of parliament and legislatures. Let's adopt a river, let's adopt a particular dam and ensure that we keep all those natural resources in a pristine environment. I thank you, Deputy Speaker. Uh, thank you, Deputy Minister. And the next question is 341, asked by Honorable L.A. Scraber to the Minister of Higher Education, Science and Innovation. Scraber. Uh, what's the tall is that? Schreiber. What's the tall is that? <laughs> Go ahead, uh, uh, Minister. Uh, thank you, thank you very much, uh, Honourable Deputy Speaker. I would like to draw the attention of the Honourable Member to paragraph 25 of the policy framework. Uh, which explicitly states, and I quote, the policy framework commits to the development and study of all official South African languages, especially those which were historically marginalized, including the Khoi, Nama, and San languages. Institutions are required to develop language plans and strategies indicating mechanisms they will put in place to enhance the development and promotion of indigenous African languages as centers of research and scholarship. That is what the language policy framework for higher education says. So we are not alleging that Africans, Khoisan, and Nama languages are not being included. They are. Afrikaans as an official language and the other languages to be specifically developed. The notion, therefore, that Afrikaans, Koinama, and San languages are excluded in terms of the policy framework is clearly not the case and detracts from the general orientation of the policy framework and government initiatives and programs aimed at fulfilling the constitutional mandate of my department. Thank you very much, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The uh, Honorable DP, Sibir. I believe that's in. Thank you. Oh, no. Thank you. Oh, no. Hello. Oh, 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 car, please. 
Thank you very much, Chair, uh, Deputy Speaker. Just a note that I'll be asking my question in an indigenous language if you'd like to make use of translation. Deputy Speaker, so as what you know, vecht die DA en verskeie burgerregte organisaties reeds van die begin van die jaar af daarvoor dat Afrikaans is hy nog nie gereed nie skies toch ja 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 ok is hy gereed dankie adjunk speaker soos u weet vecht die DA en verskeie burgerregte organisaties reeds van die begin van die jaar af daarvoor dat Afrikaans sowel as kooi, san en namatale as inheems erken word. Dit word tans as uitheems beskou dier die ministerse beleid. Ek het onlangs inlichting ontvang dat die DAC-netwerk, een organisatie wat omself beuiver vir achtergestelde Afrikaans sprekendes, wat na Dooman, Atshumau en Kurtoa vernoem is, reeds op 24 augustus een vergadering versoek het met die minister om te verduidelik hoe hierdie diskriminatie een inpak het op diverse Afrikaans sprekende gemeenskappe. Minister, Waarom ignoreer u die daknetwerkse versoek vir een vergadering en sal u vandag, gegewe wat u vroor gesê het, in die huis onderneem om Afrikaans, sowel as kooi, san en namatale, as inheems in te sluit in die beleidsraamwerk voordat het op 1 januari in werking tree. Dankie. Honorable Minister. Honorable Deputy Speaker, firstly I just want to say, I have not refused to meet with anyone. Anyone who would like to meet with me on the language policy is more than welcome, including yourself, Mr. Schreiber. I'm much closer than the UNESCO that you are trying to protest to over a non-issue. Secondly, secondly, the issue of the status of any language in South Africa, which you are raising with Africans, because it's a different question. You are saying Africans is an indigenous South African language. That's an issue for the Constitution and for the Department of Arts and Culture. I don't deal with the status of languages. I deal with the use of languages in the higher education and the post-school education and training sector. Anyway, I'm willing to debate you. I'm willing to debate you. The issue that we are trying to run away from is that our policy says we must develop languages that way. We must we protect all African languages, but we must pay particular attention to those languages that were suppressed in the past, which is the nine Bantu languages as well as the Koinama and San languages. Africans under apartheid was privileged and all resources poured into it, and we are not against Africans, but we must promote the African indigenous languages. That is the policy of government. And I am not going to be apologetic about that. To promote those languages is not to be anti-Africans or to be anti any other languages. Thank you very much, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Honorable DP Sibia. You've got uh, interesting initials for high office, DP. Yes. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Uh, thank you to the Minister. What is the department doing to promote the indigenous languages in higher education? Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. 
Thank you, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker, and thanks to, to Honorable Speer. Precisely, Honorable Speer, your question is so spot on. The reason why we've developed this language policy framework for the post-school education and training system is so that we actually bring justice to the language question in South Africa. It's precisely aimed at identifying resources and additional measures that we should put in place to promote the African indigenous languages. The fact that metric, the overwhelming majority of metric students right now are writing their exams in a language that is not their mother, their mother tongue is criminal in terms of education. And that is what, that is what we are wanting to address. So, Honorable Spear, once all the discussions are underway right now by all the universities discussing the language issues, out of the consultations, we are then going to get a comprehensive report, especially on what additional measures to take. But I must conclude by saying, already some universities are doing very well. Mm. At UCT, you can't finish your medical training without at least having conversational course irrespective of your, your Africa, of, of your first language. UKZN is doing the same thing in promoting Isizul. In fact, I can go to a number of other universities and we are working together to reinforce that so that there is justice in language in this country and which is what is needed to promote an inclusive and a democratic South Africa. Thank you very much, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The third question is asked by Honorable W.J. Boshoff. Young Speaker and Akbar Minister. What I will weet sluit baie sterk aan by wat die Akbar Sibia nou net gesê het. My inlichting is dat Afrika tale, inheemse Afrika tale, soos wat het traditioneel benoem is, aan Suid-Afrikaanse universiteite achter uitgeboer het seder 1994 en nie vooruit nie. Met ander woorde, vaktaal wat bezig was om te ontwikkel in Isisulu, in Isikloza en in Setswana, dit is projekte wat gestaak is en wat beteken dat hierdie inheemse tale in een swakker posiesie is as voor 1994. Wat ons by die beleidsraamwerk bring, wat sê dat Afrikaans as een inheemse taal, maar wat voorheen bevoordeel is, eindelijk eers ingehaal moet word. Hierdie ander inheemse talen vooral weer in Afrikaans gewerk word. Maar hierdie beleidsraamwerk sê basis precies die selfde seder 2003. En seder 2003 het die Afrikaans talen nie vooruitgekom nie. Ek wil graag weet wat gaan nou verander. Baie dankie, Agbaris, met jong speaker. Honorable Boshoff, your time is expired. Be brief. It still makes sense if it is brief. Honorable Minister. Akbare Bosov. Gefunuk vuma kwe nukuti. Agwanele sagwenzile uktutugusa ilimu. Zabumda. Kulelizwe lagiti. But it's not true that we have not done much. 
And also, I, I want to come back to this. We have our role to play as higher education. We are playing that role. But the development of languages is broader than just in the higher education sphere. It's the entire education system. It's in schooling. It's in cultural activities comprehensively. That is why I am saying it's important also that this question will answer it together with my colleague, Minister Mteto, because he's the one who can be able to point out exactly what has been done comprehensively to actually deal with the, the issue of promoting. On my side, I had a task team in 2013 that I appointed, which came with recommendations which are forming part of this policy framework that I've actually put out so that we are able to, to see what additional resources we need. One day, Honorable Deputy Speaker, I would like to debate with Honorable Schreiber and Boshoff. Why should you describe Afrikaans as an indigenous language in order, in order to protect it? It doesn't require that. It's an official language, just like English, which is non-indigenous, but it's one of our official languages. As a matter of fact, historically, I would like to debate you. The origins of Afrikaans is actually in the Dutch language and was spoken as broken Dutch by the colored working class here, not even by the elite right-wing Afrikaner agenda that has been trying to exploit Afrikaans. It doesn't matter what its origins are. It doesn't matter. Don't try and, and, and turn history and say the origins of Africans is in Africa. The origins of Africans is in Dutch. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's this historical thing. Let's focus on the real... It's the development of the languages that were viciously suppressed Thank by you. the apartheid regime. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Uh, EFF, the next supplementary question. The EFF, you haven't given us a, a, a name for your next supplementary question. I'll be taking the question. Uh, who are you, ma'am? Uh, my Say that again. My daughter. Okay, all right. Let's, let's proceed. Go ahead. Um, thank you, Chair. Um, Minister, it is true that Africans still enjoys privileges not afforded to indigenous, indigenous languages in this country generally and in institutions of higher learning in particular. Um, in addition to what you have said you have done already as, as the department, what practical steps have you taken to ensure that this colonial and apartheid legacy of marginalization of African languages is addressed at institutions of higher learning. Honorable Minister. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker, and thanks to the member. I hope that I had answered that question already by saying what, what, uh, what, what actions are we taking and the current discussions on the language policy framework, the initiatives that we are supporting that universities are taking to promote the use of African languages. I also, by the way, want to say to the FF, let's be careful. In many ways, this debate is a false debate. It's a fight between the DA and the Freedom Front Plus as to who is the best representative of the Afrikaans language and the Afrikaans speakers. 
I'm just being collateral damage in what is actually an electoral. And this issue arose now in the lead up to the local government elections because the DA is scared that the Freedom Front Plus is taking its voters away from them. That is why they don't deal with the real issues. I've said to, to Honorable Striper, go and debate right now this language policy framework. Don't come and tell me all other things. Come, let's debate. Yes, I'm more than willing to do so. Rather than trying to do what you are doing, this kind of trying to appeal to African speakers in order to increase the vote of the DA. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Uh, the next question is 312, asked by Honorable Mishwe to the Minister of Social Development. Honorable Minister. Minister Zulu is supposed to reply to this question. The Honourable Minister's mic is muted at the moment. Can you just unmute, Honourable Minister? Thank you very much, um, Chairperson. Um, Honourable Members, uh, thank you, uh, firstly, Honourable Mishwe, for your, for, your, for your question. And the Department of Social Development spends more than $180 billion on social grants per annum to support vulnerable and poor individuals in South Africa. It is important to note that our current social grants, excluding the SRD, mainly support those who are outside of the labor market, such as the elderly, children, and people with disabilities. The department is currently in the process of finalizing a framework for linking social protection beneficiaries, including able bodies dependent on social grants beneficiaries to sustainable livelihoods. And again, the issue of able bodies is for some discussion from, for some other time. The target group will be broader than just the social grant beneficiaries, will include other members in their households who can benefit from such assistance. These will also include social relief of distressed beneficiaries, those who receive a food parcel of frequent community nutrition development centers, which we call CNDCs, targeted communities such as the Khoisan and those who have dropped out of other government programs, such as the EPWP program. The framework, as mentioned, will be implemented during the 2022-23 financial year. And the objectives of the framework are to, amongst others, contribute towards creation of employment opportunities and thereby reduce levels of poverty, hunger, unemployment, and inequality, provide for an integrated approach to poverty alleviation 
and reduce intergenerational poverty, empower and strengthen the income, assets and capabilities of social protection beneficiaries and enable them to achieve sustainable livelihoods. And lastly, create a gateway to opportunities that will promote self-reliance. I thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Meshu. Thank you, thank you, Chair, and thank you, Honorable Minister, for that reply. South Africa currently has more grant recipients than salary earners, and millions are still waiting to hear the outcome of their grant applications. According to the senior economist at the Efficient Group, Dr. Francois Stoffberg, we have about 19 million South Africans living on social grants and 14.9 million who have jobs. And this is totally unsustainable. Order. May I ask the Honorable Mpushe, please switch off your microphone. You are disturbing the sitting. Please continue, Honorable Member. Given the appalling state of filth from uncollected rubbish and neglected drainage in many CBDs and townships throughout the country, which threatens residents' health and safety, Honourable Minister, I want to know whether you have considered to the urgent employment for people on grants to clear away rubbish and clean ditches. This would be vitally important for public health and safety and would give the unemployed an opportunity to do something worthwhile with their hands and earn an income. This, I believe, will help those who are on the system of grants, look forward to the day they will be removed and when they will be able to have jobs to satisfy and look after their families. Thank you. The Honourable Minister. Um, thank you very much, Honourable Chair and Honourable Minister for that uh, uh, question. I firstly want to uh, make a distinction and a very clear distinction, uh, Honourable Members, between the people who receive the social grants and the reasons why they receive the social grants. Firstly, the grants, as I indicated earlier on, it is grants that are given to the elderly and there's just no way that they, we can want to start removing the elderly from the social grant because they are already in pension and they deserve uh, to have that money. And maybe may I also remind um, the, the, the honorable members that the majority of our people who are elderly, who are dependent on the social grant, many of them didn't call for what is happening to them. Many of them didn't have jobs at the time when they were supposedly the sole abled body. Many of them were not even, even able to save as much money for their future and for their retirement because they were busy taking care of their children and grandchildren and they were earning miserable salaries at that. And some of them actually didn't even work or didn't get any salaries at all. So there must be a distinction. And then others are receiving the social grants because they are in the indigent uh, register or they are children who, um, whose mothers have to take care of them because some of the fathers are nowhere to be found to take care of the children. And lastly, some people are also 
uh, disabled and that disability, they did not call it upon themselves. And therefore, there are those people who our government, as according to the constitution, must take responsibility of because they are unable to take care of themselves. And then I will go to those that are unfortunately not finding jobs because jobs are not uh, available and the economy is not doing that well. Yes, I will agree that those that can be able to find jobs and can work. And I do want to say that my experience uh, with the South Africans, the majority of whom are unemployed, not to say they don't want to be employed. They do want to be employed, but the conditions at the moment are such that jobs are hard to come by. And lastly, COVID has also devastated our economy, and therefore a lot of jobs have also been lost. So when all is said and done, yes, we have to take responsibility and help those that are not as privileged as some of us are, who cannot take care of themselves, not because they called it upon themselves, because the conditions are very difficult. And yes, Honorable Mesher, we do everything we can on our side as government to look for opportunities, including the EPWP program that we encourage people to participate. Honorable Minister, your time has expired. Thank you. Thank you. The next follow-up question will be asked by the Honorable Shlongo. Is the Honourable Member available? Are you rising to take the follow-up question on behalf of the Honourable Member? Yes. Please proceed. Thank you very much, uh, Honourable House Chairperson. Uh, thank you, Minister, for such a comprehensive response. Uh, noting that other departments play a developmental role in the skills development and economic development opportunities throughout our country, I would like to find out what is the key, what is the department doing to integrate all key developmental services as it relates to the payment of grant beneficiaries. Thank you very much. Thanks. The Honourable Minister. The Honourable Minister. Please proceed, Honourable Minister. Thank you. Thank you, Chairperson, and thank you, Honorable Stock, for that follow-up question. In an attempt to provide integrated service delivery, the department participates in all joint coordinating structures, such as the Social Protection Community and Human Development Clusters and the Forum of South African Directors General, as well as dedicated interministerial committees and various joint task teams set up by government from time to time aimed at coordinating government offering and opportunities for citizens so that we also as a department of uh, social development can also be able to communicate what comes out of that and expose the opportunities uh, for communities. The department has already made some progress with linking grant beneficiaries to other government services. For example, social grant beneficiaries automatically qualify for no fee schooling and the department also has an arrangement with NESFAS to provide support to former uh, child support grant beneficiaries who qualify for further education. And I wish to thank especially those children, the child support grant beneficiaries who complete their metric and we normally celebrate them and we assist them in making sure that their life 
is made easy and their journey is made easy towards the future, whether it's education and technical high and uh, university and all. We have also referred beneficiaries of COVID-19 SRD grant to the youth mobile online portal, which is an employment assistance program supported by the presidency's youth employment program. And the department and SASA is currently engaging with the Department, department of Public Works to conclude a data sharing agreement. This will enable SASA to share EPWP opportunities with social grant beneficiaries. And discussions are also being held with the Department of Employment and Labor to determine the possibility of linking grant beneficiaries who are of employable age to the employment services offered by the Department of Employment and Labor. I thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The next follow-up question is to be asked by the Honorable Opperman. House Chair, I'll be taking the follow-up question. It's Honorable mm -hmm. Abrams. Um, Minister, the vision of DSD is a caring and self-reliant society, as you mentioned. Yet dependency on state welfare is increasing in a matter that precedes COVID-19 and the 350 grant. As a result of a failing economy, grants will remain with us, trapping South Africans within a cycle of poverty if it is not reworked. DSD must focus from grants being a handout to a hand up by incorporating empowering conditions to a grant as to assist in creating an environment and enabling no, environment sorry. for the private sector to create jobs. Minister, would you support and actively implement conditions attached to grants for those within that job-seeking age category? For example, attending free parenting skills or family strengthening workshops, CV writing or job interview readiness classes, substance abuse or GBV workshops, all which can be done within partnership with our NGOs and CEOs. Thank you, Aushin. Thank you, the Honorable Minister. Um, thank you very much, Chairperson, and thank you, Honorable Abrams, for that um, question. I, I seem to be getting a sense um, that members think that when we are supporting our communities, and especially those that are left with almost nothing, we are creating dependency. Let this be very clear. Nobody wants to be dependent on anybody. And this I know as a matter of fact, engaging with the communities on the ground that they too want to be assisted so that they can be lifted into being able to do things for themselves. And the fact must also be indicated here that when communities are struggling because of one thing or the other, including COVID-19 right now, when we are supporting those communities, we don't regard that as creating dependency would rather help our people who go to bed with absolutely nothing, that those who cannot afford to even buy a piece of bread, would rather be able to support them and assist them until such time that they are able to take care of themselves. Also, we need to create a conducive environment for our communities and community members, and they are very much willing to be assisted. And therefore, Honorable Abrams, I fully agree with you, those that um, uh, uh, can be assisted and we can see that uh, people can be assisted uh, with skills development, which the department is doing, particularly focusing on women uh, who have found themselves in, in, in the safe uh, houses. Yes, we will continue to do that because 
when all is said and done, let it also be clear, the majority of our people did not call poverty, unemployment and inequality upon themselves. So government and the private sector has to do everything they can. I don't think also when we are assisting our community is just a handout. It is an amount of money that they deserve so that they can be taken care of. And the conditions for grants and all, yes, of course, when if we have among our communities a very small number of people who want to take advantage of the grants, but I don't think there's anyone, anyone who can say that 300 rands is enough for them uh, to leave. It's a way that government is saying, while you are looking for something, while you are struggling, let us lift you up by ensuring that at least you can buy a loaf of bread, mealy meal and sugar and salt for your families. I thank you. Thank you, Honourable Minister. And the last supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Briet. Thank you, House Chair. House Chair, currently 27.8 million people are dependent on social grants. More than 6 million of this number are for the 350 Rand SRD grant. Yesterday's unemployment figures show that more than 660,000 people have lost their jobs during this last quarter and they will be running to Sasa next. Minister, this will not be sustainable. And EPWP work does not create sustainable jobs. Would it not be better to, instead of paying out grants and handing out temporary jobs, that the department looks at a couponing system rather than a basic income grant to encourage job seeking and assist job seekers to apply for jobs, go to interviews, etc., so as to ensure that these scarce funds go towards pe getting people off social grants and into the labour market? This will also prevent young people to in future become dependent on old age grants. I thank you, Chairperson. Thank you. The Honourable Minister. Um, thank you very much, uh, Chairperson, and thank you, Honourable Great, for that um, question. Yes, I agree with you, and I think to a very large extent I have answered um, that question, but I still insist South Africa must not look at our people who are finding themselves in difficult situation as a burden. We would rather have a society of people who are able to go out and get the work and, 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 and work for themselves because the conditions are available for that, because the jobs are being created. And government is not the one that is supposed to be creating all the jobs that are necessary in South Africa. So the whole discussion about economic transformation the whole discussion about improving our economy and growing our, our economy, the whole discussion about strengthening our systems, for instance, if we look at the Department of Small and Medium Enterprises, supporting your informal segment, I mean, your, your informal business, uh, supporting your cooperatives, we are all for that at all. But I do want to make the statement, when people are not in a very good condition, it is our responsibility, those of us, again, who are privileged to be able to put bread on our table, not to look at the poor as people who are just waiting out there for social grants or waiting uh, uh, to be given money for free. That we must know. Majority South Africans do want to work but the conditions and the jobs are not being found for them. Yes, I agree. We must collectively all work together, private sector, government, NPOs and all, to lift uh, up our communities. I thank you. Thank you, Honourable Minister. Honourable Members, question number 315 has been asked by the Honourable Mashlatsi 
to the Minister of Higher Education, Science and Innovation, the Honourable Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honourable House Chair, and thanks uh, for the question from Honourable Matlatsi. Also to quickly congratulate her on being appointed as the whip of our portfolio committee. Uh, the, I, will, I, will, I will make a statement on the state of readiness for the 2022 academic year, which will include details on the NESFAS allocations for the 2022 academic year, following the release of the 2021 metric results in January 2022. Nevertheless, I have already started this morning in the portfolio committee by beginning to give a clear indication as to our state of readiness for next year. The early January one will then be taking into account our response to the metric results and how ready we are for the numbers that will come out of that process. I will also continue to engage with the university and Tivet college sectors on student funding matters and preparedness for the 2022 academic year. The expected NESFAS shortfall for the 2022 academic year is still under discussion within the budget processes following the medium-term budget policy statement, which outlined the funding requirements for bursaries for poor and working-class students over the medium-term expenditure framework. Further details will be provided following the conclusion of these engagements within government of course, assisted by a direct engagement between the Minister of Finance and myself in the process. Thank you very much, Honourable uh, House Chair. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Mashlatsi. Thank you very much, uh, House Chair. Indeed, Minister, you indeed uh, responded profoundly and extensively to issues relating to Excuse me? Order, Honourable Members. Extensively. Ask, ask your question, Honourable Member. Responded that extensively on the <laughs> preparations towards 2022 academic year. However, it is important Order, that Honourable Members. You see these ones? He dealt your with time, them. Your time will expire soon, What is the progress, I'll say? What is the progress on the development of of a sustainable funding model for the poor and the missing middle to avoid repetitive challenges of shortfalls, as well as demand exceeding the supply. You Africaners, huh? <laughs> the Honourable Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honourable Makati, uh, for that follow-up question. What I would like to say is that I have appointed a ministerial task team to support the urgent policy review that is needed on student funding, whose aim also is to come up with a comprehensive student funding model for the country so that we deal with matters of funding once and for all. The task team has been working since June and it has presented to cabinet twice already and it's doing its work in two phases. Phase one has been to identify what options are there that we need to choose from. What is the best option out of those options in terms of supporting student funding model? 
The ministerial task team has already recommended to cabinet that we need a mix system, which will be bursaries as we have now for NESFA students, as well as also then look for other sources of funding from outside the system. And the second phase will require extensive modeling of the funding option that we have chosen in order to see how sustainable that is, where would funds be required, and so on. What is clear is that government at the moment has got a policy of a, a bursary to support all those students who come from families whose income is not more than 350,000, which is the children of the working class and the poor. Those who fall outside that is something that the ministerial task team is considering. And of course, other non-fiscal sources will have to be identified as to how then those can be able to assist those deserving students, but who do not fall within the framework of what government is covering at this point in time. Uh, by thank you for setting. Thank you, Minister. The next follow-up question is to be asked by the Honourable King. Um, thank you, Minister. Minister, I just want to ask as well, this morning in the meeting, it was clearly stated that there is great concern when it comes to the sustainability of the funding model and how we are going to actually cover the 10.1 billion rand shortfall. So, Minister, you also said that it's a matter of robbing Peter to pay Paul in the meeting. So, Minister, is it not then sufficient to say that the fee-free higher education model is not sustainable for South Africa, given the fact that up to date we still haven't changed the NEFSA Funding Act to be in line with the fee-free higher education model? The Honourable Minister. Uh, thank you, uh, Honourable. Chair, uh, thanks, thanks for the, for the follow-up question from Honorable King. The reality that we, we face, and it's our point of departure, is that the state of our economy is bad. The resources that are flowing into the coffers of the state are far from what we would need to have. The whole of the government's budget is under pressure. That is what is important, and therefore, inevitably, funding for higher education would also be under pressure, just like the other funding considerations uh, are under pressure. The sustainability of the model will depend largely on what creative mechanisms do we find within the constraints we have to actually sustain funding. But government has committed and has said it loud and clear. It's committed to continue funding deserving students and who are capable who comes from the ranks of the working class and the poor. That still remains government's commitment. The issue of the shortfall is something, as I have said in response to Honorable Mashatsi, that we are having discussions at the moment with the Minister of Finance, and the matter will have to revert very soon to the minister's uh, uh, committee on the budget, because the sooner we are able to know how much we are able to support NESFAS next year, 
the better so that the universities and the Tibet colleges are able to plan better. Government and cabinet is acutely aware of that. And we hope that we'll be able to settle this matter sooner. But what the ministerial task team is doing is looking at 2022, but also beyond. We are looking at the next three to five years and even beyond to say what kind of a comprehensive student funding model we need and where can we creatively access resources to be able to support that. But the question of commitment to the children of the working class and the poor is something that government is firmly committed to. Thank you very much. Thank you. The next follow-up will be asked by the Honorable Tambo. Thank you very much, Chair. In view of the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic has severely impacted the post-schooling sector, particularly around matters related to access, and in view of the various lessons that can be drawn by this department from the experience during the 2021 academic year, and also noting the NASFAS, that NASFAS will expect a 10 billion rand shortfall in student funding for the 2022 academic year. Other than increasing pass rates in order to accommodate budget cuts, which is the evident solution that has been drafted now, what plans does this department have to address the shortfall expected by NASFAS, if any, outside of commitments? Thank you very much. Thank you, Honourable Member. The Honourable Minister. Uh, Honourable House Chair, thank you to Honourable Tambo for the question. But I, I want to say that very clear. There's been no increase in pass rates that has been decided upon as we speak now. And also, I think that Honorable Tambo is being disingenuous because I, ref I answered this question this morning and also earlier today to say what we are looking at in terms of possibilities of modifications to the guidelines for funding are not primarily driven by funding considerations, but they are driven by the necessity for students to be able as many of them as possible to finish their own studies in record time. That is what we are doing and that is what we are actually committed to. I also did say, by the way, of course I've got to answer here this morning that we are also still faced with enormous challenges as a system with the continuation of the COVID-19 pandemic now fa facing the fourth wave. That still requires that we engage very closely with all the stakeholders so that we find collective solutions to the problems that we face so that we are able what we managed to achieve last year by the way to be able to finish the 2020 academic year as a result of this continuous engagement with all the stakeholders thank you very much honorable uh, house chair thank you honorable minister the last follow-up question will be asked by the honorable sukas Thank you, House Chair. Honorable Minister, COVID-19 disproportionately impacted women negatively, and the economic empowerment of women is often limited by pregnancy and often crises pregnancies interrupts their personal development goals. This challenge combined with a lack of funding impedes the economic advancement of adult women and their access to opportunities for further learning or access to skills development programs in critical sectors of the economy. Is there recognition that the more mature adult, especially women, when invest in, invest 
invested in would achieve better results in completing studies? And is there a plan uh, to include or target this category of women wanting to further their learning and thus improve their economic prospects? The Honourable Minister. Thank you, uh, Honourable House Chair. It looks like this is a new question, which is not exactly in line with the original question that has been asked about readiness for next year. But nevertheless, the Honourable Member is raising an important issue, which I, I must just say something about, the issue of women, and to ensure that women do not continue to be negatively affected by COVID-19 in the provision of education. I want to say, first of all, that our post-school education and training system has got an entity which was created originally, by the way, as a voluntary thing by universities, higher health, which is actually looking into areas of health and wellness for students in general, but in particular also looking at the issue of promoting gender equality and the fight against gender-based violence. That is very much part of our work. Also, I'm very proud to say that we want a department that has got a complete policy framework for gender equality and the fight against women's oppression in our sector, which has been welcomed by all of our institutions, and each institution is developing its own policies to advance and protect women with guided by this overall framework. So I am acutely aware, together with the department, of the dangers of women being disproportionately affected negatively by pandemics. And with the help of higher health and this policy framework, as well as something I referred to earlier, which is the ministerial task team that brings together all the stakeholders to ensure that no one is left behind, especially women. Thank you very much, uh, Honourable House Chair. Thank you, Honourable Minister. Honourable Members, we will now proceed to question number 359 that has been asked by the Honourable Sheikh Imam to the Minister of Human Settlements. The Honourable Minister. Thank you very much, House Chair, and thank you, Honourable Sheikh Imam, for the question. Let me first indicate that in various consultations, with all majority of our stakeholders, including the public. What has come through, it's not that entirely South Africans are saying we must stop provision of the BNG, what we know as RDP houses. There has been a call for various interventions in the portfolio, including that of service stands. And I must indicate with these interventions, it's because various citizens have different needs. You'd find that indigenous indigent communities, especially those who are elderly and those who are people living with disabilities and the most vulnerable will continue to require that government provide the PNG, what we call the RDP houses. Now, with intervention and the adjustments of policy, we have started already to provide for what we call service sites and quite a number of areas now already in provinces that have started to look into this because we do acknowledge that there are South Africans who are already uh, in a position to say what we need is a land, 
with the services such as water, electricity, and sanitation, and therefore we can build for ourselves. So that's what we are doing. And indeed, as part of the work that we are doing, to develop and, and to move to transition towards a human settlement development bank. Part of the work that we are doing is to ensure that the bank, as it comes to life, once the bills have been passed and ascended to, and it has been fully established in terms of the laws, to provide for loans of those who will be able to say we can be able to get a land and therefore pay for ourselves. Thank you very much, House Chairperson. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Sheikh Imam. Thank you, uh, Honourable Chairperson. Minister, my understanding is this, that we have a problem, particularly at local government level, in terms of capacity to deliver these fully serviced sites. And this is what is hampering the success of the rollout of this particular project or program. Could you please advise what additional measures are being put in place to ensure that municipalities, that is local government, are more capacitated to be able to provide more service sites? Thank you. The Honourable Minister. Thank you very much, House Chair. Thanks, Honourable Sheikh Imam. Um, their work in terms of service sites is not only the responsibility of municipalities. Honourable member will note that not all municipalities are actually having a developer status. So in the provision of human settlements, you will have some municipalities that have the capacity to be able to do that. And where there's no capacity, we work together with the provinces to be able to lead. So the provinces are actually the leader in terms of that, where there is capacity within municipalities, we are able to actually translate that into municipalities to being able to provide that capacity. Again, Housing Development Agency, it's one of our entities that is able to assist us in terms of this area of work. But I do need to highlight that, yes, in my work and in the interaction with municipalities, we have found areas where you find that there is capacity challenges and also especially in the process of declaration of this, the areas in terms of settlements or even townships. We do find that sometimes within municipalities, especially around capacity on the planning, we do have challenges. But what we have done as the national department is through our informal settlement grant and also that technical, we've developed a technical team that goes into the provinces and all into those municipalities to be able to support in terms of capacity to deliver on that particular service. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The next supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Tseki. Uh, Indeed, uh, Minister, our policy is informed by classical rule of from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Uh, the question is as follows, uh, Minister. How many service sites are already allocated to the people of South Africa? And what plans uh, the HDA, which is the Housing Development Agency, has to fast track the provision of these stands? You can see them go. 
The Honourable Minister. Naken some someone's to next plenilla honorable take for um on the service sites we currently have been able to do ten thousand eight hundred and fifty-five. As you know that this is not an old uh program and a, a, a new program that has been, but compared to that, major part of that we've seen done, firstly in Gauteng and Free State, followed by KwaZulu-Natal and other provinces are following. So that's where we can be able to give uh, in terms of that. With regards to Housing Development Agency, uh, what we do is partnering with the provinces where the provinces do not have capacity or are needing support, and then human, uh, Housing Development Agency is able to provide that support. And also, as I indicated earlier, in terms of the municipalities, then we are able to, together with uh, the new board that has been appointed, we have agreed that we are going to capacitate HDA, make sure that we do have the technical capacity because some of the capacity that we need in terms of project management, we do not have, but also looking in terms of those that we put in the provinces as regional heads and provincial heads to be in the level where they are able to assist the provinces and construct the service. This is one of the areas together with the title deeds that we will be paying attention to and assisting uh, in, in the provinces and ensuring that human housing development agency is able to deliver on that service. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The next follow-up question will be asked by the Honorable Paul. Thank you. Uh, Minister, over 13 million South Africans still live in informality. Despite the department announcing last year that they would be moving away from uh, formal BNG houses towards rapid land release and site and service, your department did not manage to upgrade a single one of the 300 identified informal settlements to phase three as planned. Uh, and there's also been no shift from baseline with regards to the upgrading of the 1,500 informal settlements by the uh, 2024 target. Uh, delivery on social housing and rental units within priority development areas has uh, also represented a 12% delivery rate in the past year. Uh, Minister, given the failure of this department to achieve uh, some of these most basic targets, can you please provide us with details of your strategy to implement the recently announced uh, rapid land release program in line with the ambitions of the planned Human Settlements Development Bank? Thank you. The Honourable Minister. Thank you very much, Honourable um, Deputy Chair, House Chairperson, and also um, Honourable Powell on the issue. I think where I don't think these are basic uh, targets, Honourable Member. If you look at the process of, for example, formalizing a, form, a, a settlement, an informal settlement, firstly, you've got to be able to go in, look at the engineering services that you have to bring to be able to assess whether the settlement is sitting in an area, whether it's diplomatic or even a, a suitable place for settlement. You must identify who's the owner of the land because we know some of these areas you find that people have actually put themselves. And other issues that once you move from there, then you have to go into the municipality, which is the area that I spoke to earlier when Honorable Zeki was talking about um, the issue of capacities within the municipality. I think it's Honorable Sheikh Imam, the issue of capacity in the municipalities where the planning units within those municipalities to be able to say within this, this is what we must formalize as a settlement. So 
First thing, we've been engaging municipalities to be able to relax the conditions of formalization of settlements because it is one of the tedious processes. But secondly, it puts burden on the same municipalities who do not have the resources to be able to meet some of the requirements they have put themselves. So that's the second thing. So it's not a simple process that you do. Then when you move from that, then you start saying, identifying these people who are there, whether they fall in the category of BNG, beneficiaries, or you can give them land, or you can actually, these are people who deserve to be in low-cost housing. That is another process. So just outlining, that's what I wanted to say. Firstly, it's not a simple matter, as we are saying. It's a very tedious thing. And secondly, in terms of meeting the targets, yes, we acknowledge that our targets are not yet met, but we are putting mechanisms in place to be able to work together through our provinces and utilizing the district development model because without working with the provinces, without working with the municipalities in an integrated planning manner and also in an integrated implementation manner, we'll not be able to resolve the issues of informal settlement. And I must indicate that I must indicate, House Chairperson, the issue of informal settlements actually are a moving target. And that's why priority for us and our preference going forward, especially if it's not indigent communities, would want to give them service size because it reduces the burden, but it gives people to be able to start having where they can sit, where they can have an address, and where they can be able to say, this is where I belong. And you can give them title deeds, which becomes an asset in their hands. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you, Honourable Minister. And the last supplementary question will go to the Honourable S.A. Putelezi. Is the Honourable Putelezi on the platform? Thank you, House Chair. Can the Honourable Minister comment on the allegations that the database for the RDP houses waiting list is flawed and unreliable. What are the relevant details? Thank you, Chair. The Honorable Minister. Thank you very much, Chair. I don't think these are allegations. It's what I've said as well as a minister. And this is not that it's completely flawed. Let me just take a member through and honorable members through. What has happened is that you find that a person has registered on the database HSS. And what happens is that we align a beneficiary to a project. So if it's a project in Leradong, for example, in Gauteng, and a beneficiary has been linked to that, when that project takes longer to finish, then the person remains on that database as having benefited and having aligned to a project, and whereas a person would be sitting without a house. So that's part of what we are trying to clean. And that's why we have publicly said our preference and our plan going forward is to digitize our beneficiary system whereby even if, if Mamoloko goes and then can be able to capture their ID and look at saying this is where I'm allocated, this project is going to end in this day as part of promoting transparency but also accountability and it can give confidence on residents. Currently some people are aligned to what we talked about earlier on as unfinished projects, and therefore that's what makes people think that it's unreliable. Yes, there's been some allegation in terms of saying people have been removed from the list and all those things, and we continue to interact with that and clean up the system based on the information we receive in communities. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you, Honourable Minister. 
will now proceed to question number 316 that has been asked by the Honorable Sokacha to the Honorable Minister of Health. The Honorable Minister, are you taking the question, Honorable Deputy Minister? Uh, yes, uh, Honorable uh, House Chair. Uh, it's a World AIDS Day and our Minister is busy in a very far-flung area uh, in Lipopo in Kolchikungu with the Deputy President, so I will be taking the, the question. The answer to the question asked by Honorable Sokacha uh, with regards to the mental health facilities that the progress that has been achieved on the reported mental health facilities since the 2019-2020 financial year funded from the indirect conditional grant health infrastructure revitalization grant is uh, reported in the table that I'm just going to indicate. We are going to actually uh, we have a list of facilities in the country who have been completed. Let me start with those that have been completed. In the Eastern Cape, Fort England Psychiatric Hospital is completed. Eastern Cape, another one, Command Psychiatric Hospital, the beds configured and is completed, and the renovations have been done to accommodate the COVID-19 patients uh, in that facility. In Doranginza, 72-hour psychiatric adult chronic and gateway clinic phase two has been completed. In Wazul Natal, Itindale upgrade of the psychiatric wards is also completed. In King Dinizul, Wazul Natal again, the upgrade of the psychiatric close unit and moth hall completed. In Emmaus Hospital, a new acute psychiatric ward has been completed. In Limpopo, Letaba Hospital, upgrading of existing administration and psychiatric wards is also completed. In Pumalanga, Emelo Hospital, phase three, construction of the psychiatric wards and EMS unit block has been completed. In the Northwest, Bopelong Psychiatric Hospital, phase one, and assets that were needed there put. The phase two, has been completed. Phase 2B has been completed, but phase 3 has not been completed. It needs is an occupational therapy block, clinical psychiatric and social work unit, private wards, and emergency part. In the Northern Cape, Kimberley Hospital, the construction of the new mental health hospital has been completed. All our, pro, all our psychiatric units in the Western Cape are currently in the design phase and have not been completed. In the other provinces, we still also have other uncompleted processes. In Cecilia Makiwane, Eastern Cape, Gauteng, uh, the Vescopis Specialized Mental Hospital not completed. In Lipopo, Tabamupu, Specialized Mental Hospital not yet completed. Again, in Lipopo, Evu. Evushakeng, Specialized Mental Hospital, not completed. Pumalanga is Guamshanga, uh, that has not been completed. The rest have been completed. Thank you very much, Honorable House Chair. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Minister. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Sokacha. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable House Chair. Thanks, Honorable Deputy Minister, for your adequate response to my question. 
Now, Honorable Deputy Minister, what plans are in place to expedite the occupancy of mental ill patients' facilities? Thank you very much. Thank you. The Honorable Deputy Minister. Uh, thank you, uh, Honorable House Chair, and thank you, Honorable Sokasha, for the question. Uh, normally, a completion of a facility is inclusive of the new equipment that was necessary, commissioning of that facility, and the training being done. Now, it is always going to as a package. Uh, it is rarely completed without this process being uh, done. However, if then the completion in some of these facilities has been done outside the commissioning and the training and equipment, the procurement of the equipment is something that is started alongside the closer to the date of the completion of the facility and the commissioning thereof. It is therefore unlikely that there will be a significant lack of time between the completion and the occupation of the facility in the event the commissioning, the equipment, and the training was done was not done simultaneously. I would not be able to indicate which of those there might have been a difference in terms of completing the process simultaneously with the commissioning or the commissioning coming after the completion of the facility before the occupation of that facility. Thank you, Honorable Chair. Thank you. The second supplementary question will be asked from the Honorable Wilson. Thank you. Deputy Minister, apart from 33% of South Africans having mental health challenges, there is no sustainable funding to assist with care and certainly enough, not enough facilities to deal with the situation. Compounding the situation is it's one thing to finish a facility, but what happens thereafter? Five more lives were lost in the Kairos Center in July and August this year with neglect and starvation being cited. Desperate patients have run away and some have committed suicide as a result. Your department already faces billions of rands in medical claims and millions in legal fees, which have severely already affected health service provision. What, Deputy Minister, are you going to do to stop human rights violations in these facilities? And the do what will you do to avoid another life is a demeni incident? I thank you. Honourable Members, I want to remind you that a follow-up question is a follow-up question and not follow-up questions. Honourable Deputy Minister, you will respond. Thank you very much, Honourable House Chair, and thank you to Honourable Wilson. You are correct. When there was a life asset demand in the country, a concerted effort was done by the department to scan the whole country in regards to we should not have another asset demand, whether in Lipopo, Natal, Eastern Cape, or any part of the country. But you are well aware, Honourable Wilson, that the challenges in health and it is something that we always have to collectively change. We talk about this also as a, a portfolio committee. When there are budget cuts, there are certain programs that get actually left behind or the less and less budget. Mental health is one of them. And we need to collectively put that and to say, 
the more you actually get budget cuts and the more you tend to affect a program like mental health, the more you are going to have actually what you do have. So I would actually say it's a collective process, but it's just actually embedded in the same uh, area that we, we tend to affect the budget cuts on issues like mental health, infrastructure, and human resource when we do have. So I would not be able to give you an answer as a, is a collective effort of all of us to begin to prioritize and push mental health programs to the higher level of priorities of a department. Or of, this is a, a phenomenon in the whole world where we seem to be really pushing uh, mental health programs to the back burner. It's a collective effort that we must also do as a country, as a nation in the world. Thank you. The next follow-up question is to be asked by the Honorable Chirwa. Thank you, House Chair. I'll be taking the question on behalf of Honorable Chirwa. Please Honorable proceed. Young. Thank you. Um, Honorable Deputy Minister, during the second wave of the outbreak of COVID-19 infections, the South African Society of Psychiatrists warned that there is a direct correlation between the rising levels of COVID-19 and more acute struggles with mental health amongst many South Africans, and that the department should plan for this upsurge in mental health-related issues. What has your department done to ensure that mental health will be prioritized, particularly as the country moves from wave to wave of COVID infections. Thank you. The Honorable Deputy Minister. Thank you very much, Honorable House Chair, and thanks to uh, the member asking the question on behalf of Honorable Chirwa. The picture is bigger than probably what the psychiatrist uh, team looked into. Uh, we were actually having a meeting with the healthcare workers. And actually, it's another angle of some of the South Africans who must be looked after mentally, because they've actually been looking after our patients and they continue to see relatives and their own um, family members dying. But there's another new group of South Africans who we learned through discussions that uh, children of healthcare workers through COVID have been more depressed and we need to focus on that. They are saying, but mommy, why are you going to work when you just told us last night the person that you were looking after with COVID died? How long are you going to continue with this and therefore bringing home the... the, the. So I want to say we are still auditing that as a department even before COVID as Honorable Wilson was raising, we are behind in terms of prioritizing mental health programs. With COVID, we have had more than what we have in terms of the package of how much to actually support. There are people before COVID who probably were not having any mental health illnesses, but they do now have due to COVID. So we are auditing and saying, where do we start? Where is the most affected? Is it our healthcare workers? Is it the children of our healthcare workers? It is, so that process is on, and I may not be able to indicate now as we are actually auditing. Where do we start? Who actually gets and benefits on the focus first than the other one? Thank you very much, Honorable Chair. And Thank you. And then the next supplementary question, the last one on this question will be asked by the Honorable Umdi Shlengwa. Thank you, House Chairperson. Minutes, Deputy Minister, according to the analysis 
by experts the country expenditure on mental health is only 48 percent thereof is on specialized psychiatry health service and it seems that only about eight percent is allocated to primary health service considering the needs that exist in primary health care to attend to expand on mental health services and ensure that rural communities have access to such service what steps have been taken by the department to expand on the mental health service at the primary health care level in specific thank you thank you Minister. Uh, thank you, Honorable House Chair and the Honorable Shengwa. There has been a plan to actually make the department to realize that uh, psychiatric support, mental health programs are not at a quaternary or tertiary level, but at a very basic district and primary health care focus. It is a, a program that not many of us are aware, the GPV, the gender-based violence that we have had, has also created a big dent. I mean, the, the, the unfair labor systems in the country where women are generally uh, having unpaid work at home, it's a, a part of dependence that creates a lot of mental health that we don't talk about. So you, you have to intervene at that level. There's quite a lot of people who otherwise would not even come forward and indicate or declare their mental health status yet to do. So it actually talks to primary health care, as Honorable Marshall is talking, identifying it and actually creating resources. It's an advocacy that we need to do, not just in the department, in the whole world, because this issue of gender-based violence, unemployment, inequality, creates and breeds mental health illnesses among societies. Now, until and unless you actually remove and improve on mental, on issues of inequality, uh, on the abuse and oppression of women, on issues of uh, poor education, poor access, you are going to make very little strides in the improvement of mental health illnesses in the country. I may actually end up there, Honorable Chair, and to the member. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Minister. Honorable Members, we will now proceed to question number 325 that has been asked by the Honorable Nodada to the Minister of Basic Education. The Honorable Minister. No, thank you very much, Chair. Uh, Let me just uh, thank Member uh, Nodada for the question, but also thank you, Chair. Chair, as a department, we use what we call SASMs, which is our managed our education management systems where we collect individual learner enrollments and within it we have LURIDS and LURIDS helps us to trace, to track learners. So what LURIDS does, it will be able to give us information on learners who registered in 2020 and we are able to compare it in 2021. So which means in 2020, we will not have comparative studies which are systematic to say, we have so many learners that have dropped in the system. But what happens on a daily level? Schools and class teachers use what we, the old thing that we, what we called class registers. 
And those class registers help teachers to understand or even track learners who have really been chronically or who have been absent for a long period of time. Then schools are able to track learners at a school level. If a learner has been absent to say, this is the number of learners that have been, this is a learner that has been absent and follow up through different methods. It could be through peer groups, through other students, or the teacher themselves going to the family to check where the learner is. But at this stage, we should differentiate between dropout and absenteeism, because we are not definitely sure that a learner who had not come in February this year has dropped out, because dropout is a permanent factor that children are no longer coming back. But if it's absenteeism, it could be a child that for different reasons was not ill, was not, was not well, did not come to school maybe for the entire 2020, but is going to come back in 2021. And those are not dropouts. But we will be able in the first term of 2021, say how many learners have we lost in terms of comparative studies of saying how many learners are registering in 2021 who are part of 2020 internal grades, excluding your grade 12. So we'll only be able to give you information after the first term of 2021. Thank you, Honourable Minister. First supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Nodada. Uh, thank you so much, Chair. Minister, according to the Department of Basic Education reports, in, in 2018, there were just 152,000 dropouts. In 2020, there were over 557,000 dropouts. And this year, we're sitting at close to 400,000 reported dropouts, which exacerbates youth in not in education, uh, employment, or training. Worst of all, these dropout learners form part, they end up forming part of the expanded youth unemployment of 76%. You further exclude this analysis when you do your metric pass rate to present an inflated metric pass rate to the country. Why are these dropouts not factored into the metric pass rate and will you be willing to take the country into confidence on the real metric pass rate and what your department will do about the worrying dropout rate? As they do it in elections, there are those that are eligible to vote, there are those that actually turn out to vote, and then there are results. So why is this not done for metric results as well? Thank you so much. The Honourable Minister. Now, Chair, I can ask Mr. Honourable note that, that to wait, we are going to release reports on the results of matriculants on the 20th of January. Then he can repeat his old story around inflated metric results. It's his old song. But the point I'm making about dropouts, you can only compare statistics of registrations of 2020 in 2021. When you compare the registration figures to say in 2020, we had 1.2 million learners, in 2022 or in 2021, we have so many. Now, all the figures he's bringing, I don't know where he will get them from because Lurix functions that way. But the story about confidence, the 20th is coming, but we note that you can repeat your old story around metric results. I thought we were talking about dropouts and say a dropout would be a permanent feature. But absenteeism, which we are able to trace daily, is not dropouts in terms of our definition. So, Satanang, it went well. The next follow-up question is to be asked by the Honourable Adduans. No, thank you very much, uh, House Chair, and thank you very much, Minister, for your response. I don't want to sound like an old record, 
but uh, can you just uh, respond on the numerous factors which contribute to learner dropouts? And in order to address the dropout challenge, the different casual factors should be mitigated. What is the, the department doing to respond to the different causes of learner dropping out? Thank you, uh, Chair and Minister. Thank you. The Honourable Minister. No, thank you very much, Member Donis. And that's a very constructive way of analyzing dropouts and what the issues are. And fortunately, the information on the reasons for learners to drop out are documented in your statistics, South Africa, and all sorts of researches. And factor number one that comes from the research is that normally it's a social economic factors where there's perhaps, perhaps poor parental control or guidance or juvenile delinquency in the area. The second factor which has been cited outside economic and, and social factors has been, especially at your grade 10, grade 11, it's when young people find it difficult to cope with academic performances where you find that there's lots of repetition rates in grade 11, they get discouraged. And we've tried to put quite a number of measures to deal with that because that one affects us directly. To say, what is it that we do to make sure that kids don't find it difficult to transit from your senior phase to your FHC phase? Because that's where we have huge dropout rates and those are, are caused by academic reasons. But some are really, as I say, to youth delinquency, as I say, economic factors, substance abuse. But what we are focusing on as a sector is what is it that we do to improve our, our performance in the foundation phase, your intermediate phase, which also is a hump for our learners, and more important in the senior phase. And that's where our focus is in terms of trying to, 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 to manage the high levels of dropouts amongst learners, which are normally academic at that senior phase and not in other phases because, Chair, we have almost 99% attendance in your basic education up to grade nine. Lots of learners drop out after 10 when there's now issues of juvenile delinquency and academic challenges. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The next supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Mashabella. The Honorable Mashabella. Is there a follow-up? Yes, Honorable Member. Uh, she's having a network problem, so we are going to give it to another member. You can take another one, then afterwards we'll come in. Thank you. The Honorable Sukas. House Chair, I understand Ms. Sukas has also got a connectivity issue. May, may I put the question yes, on her behalf? Yes, you Thank may. you. Thank you, House Chair, Honorable Minister. School dropout is a complex social phenomenon that requires an integrated approach from civil society and government departments. In light of the economic distress and societal dislocation caused by COVID-19, does the Minister support her colleague, the Honourable Deputy Minister, who in an article in Business Tech dated 18 November stated that the new Basic Education Laws Amendment Bill, which, quote, is expected to hold parents more accountable than under current laws. This is being done exclusively by increasing the criminal penalty under the Act. This criminalization is not consonant in the ACDP's view with our constitution or the child law. 
Will the minister rather establish a working group, including all social structure departments, academics, and NGOs to study the phenomenon and make recommendations rather than criminalizing parents in this regard? Thank you, Deputy Chair. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Swart. The Honorable Minister. No, sir, I fully agree with Mr. Swart to say the question of learner dropout is really bigger than the sector is bigger than parents. It's something that needs societal interventions. We even ourselves looking to say in certain communities, there's very low levels of dropout rates. So it also has to do with the, the culture, the social culture in different communities that children and parents find it, find it normal not to really uh, 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 attend school. Where parents come in, because again, our research says, besides your academic challenges, it's also parental guidance, so that when a child does not go to school, parents must make it their responsibility to report the matter so that it can be dealt with. Because if a child does not come, you are not sure that parents have relocated, that's why the child is not here. Now the school has to take trouble of trying to trace the child and see what are the reasons that have forced the child not to come to school. So he's right that it is a very complex social, economic, and academic factor that needs all of us to work together. The president in particular has even during the teacher's award said to us, this must be one of the priorities that we look at to stem out a dropout rate, Mr. Nodata is right. If we have lots of young people dropping out of school, it creates more social problems down the line. So it's something that we have to agree with. But I also agree that criminalizing parents may be too harsh, but they have to also come to the party and support both their learners and the schools to support our children to stay longer in schools. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Is there a follow-up question now from the EFF? Please proceed. Uh, thank you, House Chair. Uh, the question that is being forwarded is, Minister, it is reported that as many as 750,000 children dropped out of school during the pandemic and that school attendance is the lowest it's ever been in 20 years. In a country engulfed in unemployment and lack of skills, this is a tragedy. Do you know whether the children who dropped out, who, the ch who dropped out are? And what are your plans to get them back to school? If they don't come back to school, what will be the short-term, medium impact of this massive dropout? Thank you, Chair. The Honourable Minister. No, the, the figures shocked me because I've never heard about them. I'm hearing from the EFF that we've lost almost 700,000. I really don't know. But as I said earlier, Chair, we are able to give a scientific account on dropouts when we compare apples with apples. We will be able in the first term to, to say in 2020, how many learners had registered in 2021 of those that registered in 2020. How many have remained? The fact that the 700,000, it's, it's another story. But what is what also surprised us as sector check, in 2019, when we compared 2019 to 2020, we discovered that we actually had more learners in 2021 as compared to, 20, to 2019. 
So we will we'll only be able to say how many letters have dropped out. And I've mentioned to them, uh, to, them uh, to, to members, that's one of the most serious challenges that we, 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 we confront as a, as, as a sector, especially as I say, if you read our statistics, dropout rates happen in big numbers at the, at the FET phase after the senior phase. And the reasons have been cited, it's teenage, it's juvenile delinquency, it's social factors, it's environmental uh, uh, challenges, but also academic challenges. And the figures of 700, uh, I'll be interested to know where EFF got it, because we don't have that figure. We have not as yet compared the 2020 statistics to know how many learners have not returned. So I can't go and look for children that I don't know if they are absent or if they've dropped out, but we will be able to really, as annually we do it, give statistics as to how many learners have been returned, how many learners have dropped out, and therefore, what measures are going to be put in place. But the figure doesn't sound right. I've never heard about it, even as a minister. I don't know whether EFF gets it. Thank you, Honourable Minister. Honourable Members, question number 348 has been asked by the Honourable Mashabela to the Minister of Basic Education. The Honourable Minister. No, yes, Chair. In terms of our reports from both Houting and Northwest, when the rent, when Johannesburg Water announced that there are going to be water cards, the Houting province put measures in place to make sure that the, 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 the water cards don't interrupt the exams. And according to our, to, to our reports, there were no interruptions with the exams in Houting. The Northwest part, I've checked with colleagues in the in, the, in Northwest, there were no water cards which would have affected the writing of metric results. But in Houting, when there were water cards, Measures were put in place, and therefore there were no disruptions uh, to the writing of exams by our metric learners. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you, Minister. The Honorable Mashabela. Yes, you may proceed with the. Thank you. Thank you so much, House Chair. Uh, Minister, while the Department of Education in Gauteng indicated that schools would not be affected in that province as most of, the board, uh, as most of them had boreholes, the reality of the matter is that learners who had to prepare for exams do not stay at schools. They go back to communities without water. To what extent has this affected their ability to prepare adequately for exams? The Honorable the Minister. Chair, from our reports, of what we are able to know, which will be what would have happened in schools, there were no effects of the water cuts onto the matriculants. But whether at home, because of water cuts, uh, water has not been collected, had not been collected enough, we'll not be able to know because I wouldn't know how communities and homes had prepared for those water cuts. I stay in Johannesburg. We had collected water in different ways to make sure that we can cope with the, with the uh, 54 hours of water cuts. And I would assume that families also did the same. So I would know what, how different families in their homes would have put measures in place to make sure that the water cuts don't affect their children. So we wouldn't be able to know. We can Point only of know what happened in schools. Point of order. Honorable... Uh... Uh, I didn't see the name. It's Mandela Chair. 
The whip of the issue. Okay. Proceed, Honorable Mente. What's your point of order? No, the minister is referring to a question that asked about home. We are not asking about how the homes prepared for 50. We are asking schools, basic education schools, how did they prepare themselves for the water cuts? Because children must be at school. It's not about who, how did parents prepare water. Why would we ask about parents at home to the minister of basic education? Okay, thank you very much. The Honourable Minister, do you want to respond to that point I should, of order? I think if member had listened properly, when I started responding, I said, how then schools did prepare and put measures in place to make sure that the, the, the disruptions or the water cuts don't affect them. In instances where there would have been uh, 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 effects in terms of sanitation. They said they brought mobile toilets, they brought a, 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 a portable water. So I said the provinces had put in place alternative measures. As a result, at the school level, they went, the, the, the water cuts did not affect matriculants. That's the answer I gave. Thank you, Honorable Minister. We proceed to the next follow-up questions asked by the Honorable Siwela. Honorable Suela. EK. Yeah. Thank you, Chairperson. Hello, Chair. Can you hear me? Yeah, Tatana. Yeah. Um, Chairperson, thank you for, for the opportunity and uh, greetings to, to the minister and thank you for, 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 for the response. Chair, the minister has responded adequately to the question and also covered. What would have been my follow-up question? Thank you. Uh, the next follow-up question will come from Honorable Notata. Thank you so much, Chair. In order for us to fix the problems in basic education, Minister, I think we must acknowledge the problems and not run away when we give you statistics. We don't just dream about these. These are people's real life and faces. During the 2020 presentation, during your 2020 presentation on the state of readiness of schools, Minister, you indicated that there are no schools with the water crisis. However, over 358 schools still haven't have had access to water till date. Over 2,111 schools still have pit toilets, yet the department has failed to use 1.1 billion of infrastructure meant to eradicate these infrastructure challenges. Furthermore, there are still 7,237 schools without adequate fencing in South Africa. Given the fact that these are infrastructural challenges and there's a rise in terms of kidnapping in schools, gender-based violence generally in South Africa, when will all schools have adequate fencing to ensure the safety and security of learners attending school? Thank you. The Honorable Minister? I did not that. We are trying to talk about Tetuan Gai. Without safe fence, we won't get down. Yes, statistics was perfect. So I promised you in the group, in the study, in the portfolio committee, that I'll give you a full report of statistics about where, where sanitations have been delivered, where there are gaps, where there are fences, and all the stories that we have. But I just think, Chair, 
I will find it difficult. We start not that the tender and kidnapping, the tender and man's, I'm sorry. Mafuni kidnapping is also So I really want to stop it. So I'll give him the answers if he wants. And I promised him an answer within seven days on all these stories he's repeating. He's repeating the same things he raised in the portfolio committee. And I promised him a full report. And the kidnappings is a new one. So I can also answer if he wants stories about kidnappings in schools. Thank you. We proceed to the last uh, follow-up question to be asked by the Honorable Ngobo. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Honorable uh, Chairperson. Uh, I, I would uh, want to say that um, the question has been, uh, my follow-up question has been answered uh, by the Honorable Minister Mutsaha. Thank you very much. Uh, and that was the last follow-up question from uh, this uh, question 348. We now proceed to question 317, asked by the Honorable Mangane to the Minister of Social Development. The Honorable, the Minister. Honorable Zulu. Okay, you may proceed to question 317. Yes. Yes, Chairperson, thank you very much. And uh, I do want to indicate that I've got a bit of a network problem. So if it disappears, it's because the weather is not looking very good on our side. However, in response, Chairperson, to the question, uh, by Usis Mangani, Honorable Mangani. Uh, I must acknowledge that crime in South Africa has occupied a center stage on the public agenda and is very is unacceptably high, and its high levels of crime, especially serious and violent crime, results in people of South Africa, especially the vulnerable, living in fear and feeling unsafe. I further acknowledge that the gangsterism in particular is one of the social ills in our society. And I do want to raise this issue particularly to say to the young people of South Africa, there is no glory in gangsterism. There is no glory even in families when some of your family members belong to gangsters. There's no glory in calling yourselves in a 26 or 28 or whatever the case might be. And we have to do everything we can both as government in terms, again, of strengthening our systems of uh, safety and security, but more importantly, it's about de-glorifying in our communities um, uh, gangsterism. My, my department developed the anti-gangsterism strategy, which it comes, which its outcome is aimed at providing strategic direction in the prevention and management of gangsterism in secure care centers and society at large. And I do want Chairperson to also indicate that when it comes to issues of safety and security and in gangsterism in particular, we work together with the Department of um, a, 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 a Police, SAPS, we work together with the Department um, of Justice, and I'm not just talking about myself as a minister and the ministers, but expect that our departments would step up in supporting our communities in the fight against gangsterism. But it is also about supporting those NPOs and NGOs um, to 
ensure that your CPFs and your community-based organizations have to be able to step up and watch out for the behavior of children. But it's not just about the behavior of children. It is about the adults who lure these children into gangsterism because of the supposedly glory of being a member of a gangster. But it's also got something to do with other social ills, um, such as a drug abuse and alcohol abuse. The strategy that the anti-gangsterism strategy uh, that we have developed as a department further intends to empower and capacitate children, youth at risk and in conflict with the law, staff and parents on prevention and early intervention uh, information. And again, I do want to say, Chairperson, that we might have all these good plans and good strategies. It is about working together with communities that we can be able to succeed. Based on the above objective, the outcomes of the implementation of anti-gangsterism includes elimination of practices of gangsterism in secure care centers and society at, at the societal level, empower children, youth, parents, and communities with ability to identify any signs of gangsterism, and also resilient children, and creating a conducive environment for the children. I need to emphasize that all our interventions and efforts must be impactful and change the lives of the people we serve, likewise with the implementation of the anti-gangsterism strategy. Having said that, Chair, the impact is something that can be measured after some time, especially in our cases where we deal with soft issues. In this case, an impact evaluation study will have to be commissioned to determine the impact of the implementation of the DSD's anti-gangsterism strategy. This can be done after a strategy has been implemented over a period of three years, that is 2024 to 2025. The focus of the strategy has been extended to include identified high-risk districts. I must, however, indicate that the expected impact of the implementation of the anti-gangsterism strategy is to reduce and eliminate gangsterism in our society and in the controlled environment, DSD residential facilities that cater for children and youth. I thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister Memanganye. Thank you very much, Honorable Chair. Uh, Minister, uh, thank you for the, the answer that you have given. But uh, I do want to uh, have uh, a snapshot of something. Uh, uh, one of the major problem, uh, problem in our society is the disintegration of the family unit and the community cohesion to create a conducive environment for the growth of our children, as you have already alluded, Chairperson. Uh, in our African, uh, the Af we used to say in uh, in Africa, uh, so I know Hore, you miss some of <laughs> my Zwana. Uh, it means it takes a village to raise a child. So, Minister, what initiative is the department? undertaking to strengthen the families. I heard you loud and clear when you addressing the issue of children. Thank you, Minister. And thank you, Chair. Thank you. 
Thank you, Memanganyes, the Honorable the Minister. Um, thank you very much, uh, Chairperson, and I fully agree with um, Sister Jane, Honorable, um, uh, that um, it takes a village to raise um, a child. I was in Cape Town at some point when we were um, uh, uh, talking to uh, children and we were talking to children um, who were being assisted with capacity building uh, in particular. And we said it takes a child, it takes a village to raise a child. And one of the children there stood up and says, where, are the, where is this village that you people are talking about? There are no villages anymore. So we had to explain um, to the children that it is a saying, it is an African saying that must always be taken into consideration because even if you are in towns, there might not necessarily be a village, but there are streets, there are communities, there are people who live in those communities. And it is the responsibility of those communities to be supportive uh, of each other. And in particular, parents must also continue to support each other. And children must not feel like when they are being corrected by other people they don't know, end up saying, no, this one is not my parent, and therefore he or she has got no right um, to say uh, anything. The family is the core of society and is integral to the general well-being of individuals in relation to their psychosocial, emotional, physical, and spiritual and economic needs. A family is also a cradle from which the value system, ethics, and norms of our society are transmitted and preserved. And while having said that, on the other hand, Chairperson, we also need to be aware of the fact that family in today and the description of family today might not necessarily be the same as it was maybe 30, 40 years ago. And as South Africa, we must also wake up to that reality of the new families that we talk about today. The Department of Social Development has developed programs that promote healthy family life, strengthening families and family prevention, a framework on positive values, an integrated parenting framework, fatherhood strategy, and I'm very happy, Chairperson, to see that there's many fathers who are rising, not only to talk about the issue of gender-based violence, but fathers who are also demanding that they be included in the well-being of their children, even if they don't live with their children. Abates, the number is still very small. We need to do everything to support fatherhood and the fatherhood strategy. Teenage parenting programs we have. And at this point, Chairperson, also I do want to indicate that one of the horrifying things that we are experiencing is the teenage pregnancy, but it's below teenage now. I don't know what kind of a man or what kind of man would make a 10-year-old, 12-year-old and 14-year-old uh, uh, pregnant. Families must stand up and community must stand up because that is statutory rape. And a person who does that must be arrested. We also have youth development programs, family preservation programs. Uh, the Honorable Mrs. Opperman. Thank you, House Chairperson. Minister, while reported cases of rape, violent riots, and also hostage holding of staff inside child and youth care centers are still prevalent, what results have there been since the implementation of DSD's Secure Care Anti-Gangsterism Strategy in CYCCs that indicates a decline in gangsterism and violent behavior in secure care facilities? 
Thank you. Thank you, the Honourable the Minister. Thank you uh, very much, Honourable Member, for um, that, uh, Mr. Honourable Opperman, for that question. Yes, to a very large extent, um, the numbers uh, have reduced, but we do not have to lower our guard uh, because of that, because as you are very much aware, some of the children are in those centres because they're coming uh, from broken families. And therefore, the empowerment of the staff and the capacitation of the staff, but also ensuring that within those institutions that we take care of, issues of security must be taken uh, care of. The workers in those um, centers must, must, must feel safe. I think that to a very large extent, uh, if we were to make comparisons to a few years ago and to now, we think that we have seen a, an improvement. But I don't think that it is adequate. I don't think that is, it is enough. Of course, some of the challenges we've, we face is the fact that when there are budget cuts, it means that some of the plans that we have for these centers uh, are reduced. But at the same time, we believe that if we have programs, particularly that uh, focus on the children that are in those areas and help them with the necessary education, help them with the necessary empowerment, keep them occupied with things that are positive, that can make them see the future. I think that is much more important uh, uh, than anything else. I thank you, uh, Chairperson. Thank you. Mesho Mokoto. Speaker, uh, Honorable Aris, I will take that question. Proceed, ma. Um, Minister, the, as you are aware, the drugs and cancerism goes walk hand in hand. The reality of the country is that we don't have public rehabilitation centers. We only have private rehabilitation centers. And that means that people that don't have money, automatically their children are excluded. And that means that the children get lost to society. And there's also no post-drug rehabilitation center. Minister, drugs are a widespread problem in society and drug use penetrated schools even, making learning and teaching a difficult task, a difficult exercise. What practical programs have you undertake with the Department of Education to deal with the widespread use of drugs in school. Thank you. Thank you. The Honourable the Minister. Um, thank you very much, uh, Honourable Iris. And I, I agree with you. Um, the public rehabilitation centres are far and wide and very few. Um, and also uh, the uh, post-drug centers we do have them but again in my view considering the 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 the, the challenge and the impact uh, of uh, drug abuse and drug use that's why i'm saying they are far and but we do have them and of course it is true that those that have the money they take their children uh, or any other person who has put a drug problem into drug rehabilitation where they pay sometimes they pay exorbitant um, uh, prices for that so firstly, as a Department of Social Development, working together with the Department of Health, working together with um, the Department of Education, we do need to have a coordinated effort. I know that uh, in terms of the Department um, of Education and Department of Basic Education, we've had some instances where 
even the police have to go and search in schools. And then you also have an uproar about why must uh, this, the children be searched and, and, and so forth. We believe that the issue of dealing with drugs must start first and foremost also with the drug lords and the people who are selling the drugs. And until such time that that um, uh, 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 government focuses on cutting uh, uh, the numbers and reducing the numbers and cutting that entire value chain of drug and uh, drug abuse, we will keep on having uh, systems that are dealing with the problem post. We need to be able to ensure that collectively as government, private sector, as well as communities, work towards getting rid of, 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 of drug lords uh, in our communities. The also second important thing is for us as a department, we continue to support those NPOs and NGOs who are doing something uh, practical on the ground. Uh, we depend on them also to a very large extent of ensuring that um, uh, uh, we get rid of drugs. But the drugs in schools, in my view, the drugs uh, do not necessarily walk to the school. The drugs walk with the children from uh, from homes, from streets, from dark corners. They walk with the drugs. They get the drugs. So our approach is also to say that from a security point of view, the hand must begin to be much more stronger in terms of dealing uh, and cleaning the streets uh, of drugs and drugs and those that are selling the drugs. I thank you, Chair. Thank you. The last follow-up question will be raised by the Honourable Swart. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The ACDP appreciates your focus on healthy families as the core of society and on social interventions in fighting gangsterism. We need not only social interventions, but also criminal justice interventions. The preamble to the Prevention of Organized Crime Act recognizes the pervasive presence of criminal gangs in many communities is harmful to the well-being of these communities and that it is necessary to criminalize participation in or promotion of criminal gang activities. And Chapter 4 sets out offenses relating to criminal gang activities. Honorable Minister, the ACDP believes that despite the provisions of this Act POCA, the National Anti-Gangsterism Strategy may not be showing the necessary progress given the high levels of crime that you indicated and the pervasive presence of criminal gangs. Would the Honourable Minister agree that one, SAPS and the MPA should make greater use of poker, and two, that there may be a need to review and amend poker, particularly relating to gangsterism as part of the National Anti-Gangsterism Strategy? Thank you. Thank you. The Honourable Minister. Um, thank you very much, uh, Honourable Swat, and I, I, I fully um, agree with you. And I, I, I fully agree in particular when you're talking, you're speaking to the issue of poker and the review uh, thereof, and also the pooling of our resources. I think one of the things that we have uh, consistently said um, as government is that we need to improve our coordination efforts and, and especially the implementation in this particular case the implementation of poker, but also uh, more important is about improving from a justice um, system uh, point of view and making sure that some of the people who are caught on the streets are not taken for granted that, no, it was just a minor offense of a small-time drug. The bottom line is that it starts with very young people, starting with one little thing growing into something bigger. And young people look at each other and think that they've got something to gloat about, something to be proud of. 
uh, when they are part and parcel of these gangsters and also part and parcel of the value chain and the system of the selling of drugs. So I fully agree with you, uh, Honorable Swart, and thank you for your contribution. Thank you, Honorable Minister, and thank you to all the ministers in the cluster for making today's session a success. We thank you very much. Uh, the time allocated for questions, honorable members, has expired. Outstanding replies um, will be printed on handset. The secretary will read the first order of the day. Consideration of request for permission in terms of Rule 2864C to inquire into amending other provisions of the Copyright Act Number no. 98 of 1978, Interim Report of Portfolio Committee on Trade and Industry on Copyright Amendment Bill. Thank you very much. I will just say it's not only the first, but it's also the last, and I will call the Honorable Nkosi to introduce the report. The Honorable Nkosi from the virtual platform. I know that the weather is not good where people are, especially in Gauteng. He's still online. Honorable Nkosi, it's your opportunity now. You are still here. Just unmute yourself and speak. Sleepers. Ready for? Are you going to give the report? Honorable Gossi, uh, Chief Whip, how do I, am I assisted? The report needs to be introduced before there can be declarations. He is, he is on the platform. This gadget is broken. This gadget is broken. It's been broken for a long time. We know that the the weather in Gauteng is not good, so. I'm not going to penalize anyone. I, I just request uh, two minutes uh, so that we can just uh, get the report from him. No, 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 what? No. Uh, I'm taking our way now. Shut up, Hans. Chief Whip, thank you I'm for your report. Here. No, please switch off your mic if you want to speak to them. Yeah, you can speak to them outside the mic. The, 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 the. Hello. Thank you very much, Mefrostein. You can marno set as you. So how do I go in now? Oh, thank you. Okay, so um, okay. Proceed, Budima. Uh, um, thank you very much. Um, um, one would actually then uh, ask, uh, agree that we will actually then be presenting a report, honourable speaker. 
and um, the House at large. Thank you very much. Uh, the report is presented. Thank you very much, Speaker. Thank you very much. Uh, we do have a, a request for declarations. The GA. I know, uh, as the former mayor of Ekruleni, the Honourable Nkosi is still shocked that they lost it. Yeah. And that's why he was taking so long to find himself. It's going to be a very hard and long five years for him in that municipality. House Chairperson, this bill before us, the Copyright Amendment Bill, is one that has a beginning dating back more than four years and one which seemingly has no end. A trip down memory lane is important for this House and those to the right of me as the reason that we are in this mess is because of them. One which has created uncertainty, cost investment and has bogged down the committee's time for far too long because they are unwilling to hear listen and learn. For an organization that claims that they live and that they lead, they have so far been unable to lead themselves out of the self-imposed cul-de-sac. In 2019, in a pre-election gimmick, the ANC rushed to vote on this bill in Parliament so that they could claim that they are doing something for artists and performers, and this is the first big mistake. This bill is so much more than just that. Be that as it may, the ANC rammed the bill through Parliament despite all of the DA's warnings of procedural irregularities, threats to investment, and constitutional problems. The DA then petitioned the President, pointing out all of the concerns we highlighted to his ANC colleagues. Thankfully, the President agreed and sided with the DA and ditched his party line on the bill, sending it back to Parliament, somewhat humiliating for them. But this was only half of the battle won. The President, like the DA, knows that this is a bad bill to begin with. However, you can't unscramble a proverbial legislative egg once the process has begun. The bill came back to the committee to deal with uh, the President's concerns, which at first the ANC wanted to reject. No doubt they were not happy that their president was more alive to the problems in the bill than they were. Shortly after, ANC's uh, MPs spectacularly climbed down from their opposition to their own president after Lutuli House no doubt intervened and gave them a clip around the ear. Turning our attention to permission that the committee seeks from this house, some of the changes we seek are in fact points that have been raised and date back to 2018, if only you had listened then. But here we are. For three years, they have steadfastly refused to be uh, uh, entertained, but now are being entertained uh, only after the pressure has been brought to bear on this committee by members of the public uh, and interested parties. And we really want to say well done and thank you to them. However, the big problem that still remains is the retention of fair use. 
If ever there was a party willing to bend to the will of big business and foreign interests, it has to be the ANC. The insistence on fair use, which is an American concept, how ironic, and has been punted by the likes of Google and other special interest groups, will rip the heart and soul out of the creative industry in South Africa. The ANC have tap danced to their master's tune and seem unwilling to change direction, and only time will tell whether this is the case and why this is the case, but I certainly have my suspicions. The DA invites the public and interested organizations to continue to engage with the committee and MPs from all political parties. All of this pressure that you have applied so far has brought the ANC to its knees and to this point. The DA will continue to look, uh, look forward to those submissions that will be made on these points as we seek permission to advertise and we will continue to impose the inclusion of fair use to ensure that our local content creators are protected and rewarded for their incredible talent. The DA supports the report. Thank you very much, the EFF. Can I go, Chairperson? Okay. Um, thank you, Chairperson. I don't think anybody can disagree with the notion that we must extend the, co the scope of this report and thereby capturing each and every submission that is made by the actual creative industry itself. It is our role as lawmakers and is our role as legislators. And it is unfortunate that it lies upon us as legislators and lawmakers to make the final decision. To say that this is an important bill is an understatement as it seeks to correct the many injustices that we have seen where creators create incredible works, some used continuously abroad, only to die having, having not redeemed any of the royalties owed to them, leaving no legacy for their families. We have seen many artists pass and their families left desolate purely because there is no law or policy that truly speaks to them, leaving a legacy for themselves and their families. It is an injustice that we have so many sectors, and yet the one that is hardest to succeed in is the most shortchanged. How much of our works are used abroad to this day? And yet the families of those who created them are poor and hopeless in 2021. Being part of the process of making sure that we as a committee do due, due diligence to the creators in this country has been daunting. And it's been more daunting because we have set with a legacy of what was done in the fifth parliament. And now we have to make the final decision. This is a very intricate bill. It's a bill that is taking its toll emotionally because you want to assist those who need assistance the most. To say, oh sorry, it shouldn't be that creators in the film, dance, and music industry who work tirelessly on their craft are still without any law that truly protects them and that their works are, from use without any, are used without any royalties. 
It is important that we expedite this legislation as it is long overdue, but it will only work if done correctly. And therefore, as the EFF, we do pledge all members in the creative industry to put their submissions, to make sure that their voices are heard, to get us to speak to us even privately, it does not matter. As long as your voice is heard and as long as we communicate what you have asked us to communicate, because at the end of the day, we don't stand to benefit, but it is you, your industry, that stands to benefit. Thank you. Thank you. The IFP. The IFP. Madam Chairperson. The version of this uh, of the copyright uh, amendment bill already introduced some years back uh, has been uh, a long and highly uh, polarized matter. The critical area, the critical need for the bill cannot be more emphasized as the outdated uh, 1978 Corporate Act is inconsistent with the digital era of end. Uh, there's been a, a great outcry to amend the bill. Uh, on consideration of the interim report, the IFP wish to state from the outset that uh, the long delay in finalizing the bill has uh, been a, a great injustice, technical in nature, and we do not we do support uh, the view that uh, legal certainty in this field of in intellectual property is of critical importance. We do not uh, wish the Amendment Act to be uh, tangled up in court cases, further uh, prolonging legal certainty. However, it is uh, in inconceivable that uh, the president took more than 13 months to send the bill back to parliament due to constitutional uh, reservations on the bill. This delay simply cannot be accepted were it not uh, for the action to action of, uh, of civil society organizations threatening legal action, forcing the president to make a decision, we would in all probability still be waiting uh, on the president to make a decision. The delay has been a, a great a travesty. We have considered the president's uh, letter concerning the specific uh, reservations on the bill and uh, parliamentary way forward uh, regarding the committee's uh, role and powers in further amending the bill. The further uh, public justify the committee's uh, contention that certain uh, sections in the act require further amendments beyond the current uh, amendments. We understand the nature of this uh, amendment will require further public consultations. As is clear from the many public hearings, public input is critical to ensure legal certainty and to strike a fine balance protecting uh, creative and ensuring that uh, researchers and the public, especially vulnerable in, in assessing uh, created as uh, the agents, the agent need to ensure that uh, the parliamentary process is no longer delayed. That uh, advertising of the of this section in in specific be attended. Uh, 
to immediately and that uh, we ensure this bill is finalized as a matter of agency. The IFP supports uh, the, the accepted, uh, and, and they accept, accept the interim error. Thank you. Uh, we proceed to the FF plans. Thank you, Honorable House Chief. The Freedom Front Plus is deeply concerned about the multiple errors and oversights in the responses from the Minister and the Parliamentary Legal Advisor to the Committee. In addition, the response from the Minister also explicitly drew from advice given by persons who could be considered to be partial stakeholders who continue to be engaged as experts to assist both the committee and the minister, thereby lending an unacceptable bias in these responses and in the further processing of the bill. As a result, these responses run contrary to the goal originally set for the bill of advancing the interest of South African creators of copyright works. These responses misread the detrimental impact of the bill on creators and owners of copyright works, amongst others. With their insistence to continue with the fair use clause, most of the expanded, or expanded exceptions and the contract override clause, and that they do not deal with the omission of extending existing legal mechanisms to help copyright owners against in, in any infringement of their new exclusive rights of distribution and communication to the public. The department did not present a proper socio-economic impact assessment of the totality of the effect of the bill on the creative sector. Although the term bad law is not necessarily unconstitutional, might apply here, bad law is in fact flawed and deceives the purpose of such law to the disadvantage of those who seem to protect it. If legislation as it stands is passed by Parliament on the current Copyright Amendment Bill 2017 and the Performance Protection Amendment Bill of 2016, it will certainly result in more delay for years due to the inherent law flaws that both the Minister and Parliamentary Legal Advisors now admit to exist. These flaws need to be rectified. The Freedom Front Plus will support urgently needed reform of South Africa's copyright and performance protection laws. The, honor, the Freedom Front Plus supports the report. Thank you, House Chief. Thank you. We proceed now to the ACDP. Thank you, House Chair. House Chair, the ACDP supports this report, and we appreciate that this is a very complex bill and has come a very long way since the last parliament via the presidency and now back to the Portfolio Committee. We also appreciate the controversy and concerns about the fair use clause, which seems to be the most contentious issue with this bill. The ACDP uh, appreciates the fact that the uh, concerns have been or are being addressed and that amendments will now be added to the bill and that the bill will then be re-advertised for public comment. The ACDP looks forward to considering these submissions as well as the socio-economic impact study that should also be presented with the bill. One obviously needs to avoid litigation on this issue relating to constitutionality, and so we look forward to the further deliberations on this bill to find a legally compliant and constitutionally compliant bill. I thank you. Thank you. The UDM? Okay. ATM? Good. NFP? 
AIC COPE PAC Aljama de ANC Thank you, House Chair. Merry Christmas to you also, Honorable McPherson. The ANC believes that creative artists are a critical component of driving our developmental growth path and building an inclusive economy. The Copyright Amendment Bill seeks to ensure that we strengthen our, le our legislation to ensure that artists and creatives are treated with fairness and receive all royalties that are due to them. These include the need to ensure that we reform the system of sharing royalties, improving collection and defining minimum standards of contracts between record companies and artists, protecting particularly young artists during the early stages of their careers who are desperate to get recording contracts by signing away their royalties. The Copyright Amendment Bill aims to address the recommendations in the Copyright Review Commission report by Judge Farlam, which found that there was a crisis of credibility in the collecting societies, which are the bodies mandated to collect royalty payments on behalf of artists and recording companies. For years, many artists have not been paid the royalties due to them. The Copyright Amendment Bill was developed through a consultative parliamentary process stretching over two years, where a diverse set of stakeholders and constituencies were active participants. A number of public hearings were held over an 18-month period in the National Assembly, where both written and oral comment was sought on their objectives and the efficacy of the bill and written submissions we were received in the National Council of Provinces. More than 250 written submissions were received by the relevant parliamentary committees. On the 27th of March 2019, both Houses of Parliament passed the bill and sent it to the President for assent. We all know that the President referred the, the legislation back to Parliament, acknowledging the noble objectives of the, of the legislation, but raising reservations on certain procedural and constitutional matters, which including the tagging of the bills. The retrospective provisions of, on royalty payments, amongst others. The President further felt that the fair use provisions had not been subject to proper consultation and the legislation needed to be aligned with international standards. We have, as a result, undertaken a process to respond to the concern raised by the President and amended certain provisions of the bill. The process has proven to be very technical and at times cumbersome. The ANC understands the impatience of some sections of society regarding the delay in the finalization of this bill. However, as the President emphasized, it is our desire to ensure that the bill accommodates and benefits all those it is intended to benefit, particularly the visually impaired, 
educators, students, and artists. It is absolutely important for us to do our due diligence to ensure that the bill passes constitutional muster. The ANC supports the proposed amendments to the Copyright Act 1978, which inter alia includes clarifying the definition of certain words and expressions to allow for further limitations and exceptions regarding the reproduction of copyright works, providing for the sharing of, loyal, of royalties in copyright works, the payment of royalties in respect of literary, musical, artistic, audiovisual work, and resale royalty rights. Further additions to the bill include new definitions related to personal copies, exceptions for persons with disability and to broadcasting, making the new exclusive rights of communication to the public, the availability and distribution mechanism, mechanisms applicable to published work and computer programs. In conclusion, the ANC understands the need to protect creative work, work workers and supports their socio-economic development goals. There are many conflicting interests at play, as some who would want to see the unabated continuation of the status quo. We have witnessed over the years how popular artists struggle to meet their basic needs because of unfair contracts. We have a mandate as the ANC to protect them. Therefore, the bill is a response by the ANC government to a pressing need of our country's artists, musicians, and other performers. The bill will provide a basis for generating an income stream that will contribute in developing a flourishing musical industry in our, in our country. I thank you. Thank you very much, honorable members. <clears throat> honorable members, are there any objections? to the committee being granted permission in terms of Rule 286-4C to inquire into amending other provisions of the copyright. Any? No objections. This means that the report is agreed to. Honorable members, let me just say today being the 1st of December, the Wellness Day, we wish to urge all our members of parliament in their constituencies to work with their municipalities in the locals to make sure that our communities understand what our government and the health department can offer and encourage our communities, our children, to make sure that they go and test and everybody know their status because the health department is ready to assist. Let it be upon us that we demystify this, this stigma that is there in our communities. Thank you very much. This concludes the business of the day and the House is adjourned.